You're listening to the podcast Revenge of the Drive-In, where we watch and discuss two movies randomly selected from a list of over 1,800. Our movies this week are Once Upon a Time in the West and Resident Evil. I am your host, Patrick, and I am joined by... Jim. Hello, Patrick. How are you, buddy? I'm great. Um, I'm, I'm always in a good mood when I get a chance to watch a spaghetti western or talk about a spaghetti western as we are doing this week. Less so with a Resident Evil movie, <laughs> although I won't go too harshly on that because it's the only Resident Evil movie I've seen. But well, you know it's me. It's the only one you need to see. You know I don't know video games. I don't know all this crap. I've gone <laughs> most of my life confusing Resident Evil with Silent Hill <laughs> and also with the Underworld series. The yeah. Underworld series just kind of getting thrown in there because attractive lead actress wears leather and basically does the exact same thing that Mila Jovovich does in the Resident Evil series. Yeah. <laughs> and now that we, I mean, we've covered Silent Hill, the first Silent Hill film. We've covered, or we're about to cover the first Resident Evil movie. I've seen the entirety of the Underworld series, believe it or not. <laughs> and uh, so I'm, I'm hoping that confusion is, is, is part of my past, but, you know... <laughs> We'll see. <laughs> well, you know, I will say about uh, about our movie pairing, uh, one of them is definitely a movie, and one no, of them they're is... they're both. I mean, listen, <laughs> I, I'm not going to have the fondest things to say about Resident Evil, but I didn't mind it too much. Like, You know, it wasn't as bad as I remembered it, but it was worse in some ways, if that makes sense. Okay. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, have, I have one, maybe two giant complaints about that movie that I'm sure we'll get to. But before we do that, we're going to talk about a film that I have very little, if any, complaints about, and that is Once Upon a Time in the West. This is our second Western. This is our second Spaghetti Western. This is our second Spaghetti Western from director Sergio Leone, who, of course, directed A Fistful of Dollars as well as the entirety of the Dollars Mm -hmm. trilogy, including The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, which you famously shared one of the worst opinions I've ever had, where you said you... (laughs) preferred a fistful of dollars to the good the bad and the ugly i did that was my hot take yeah that was a scorcher of a take and (laughs) and listen i mean i love a fistful of dollars i think it's an excellent movie but good the bad and the ugly absolute masterpiece and honestly you know watching it watching once upon a time in the west now again i have a hard time saying the good the bad and the ugly is better than it they're they're very similar and they're both very different and i don't know how how well you remember the good, the bad, and the ugly, but I, th- I think it's worth kind of comparing the two in a lot of ways. And I know, you know, we haven't covered the good, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly on our podcast yet, but I'm also, you know, it's it's between this and that. It's the more popular of the two films. Yeah. So I'm hoping our listeners, you know, our chances are they're more familiar with the good, the bad, and the ugly than they would be with this movie. Which, by the way, see this movie if you haven't. I mean, this is one of those masterpieces of the Western genre. It is a gorgeous film to watch. It's an epic Western. It is a Western on an epic scale, much like The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, but even more epic, I would say. Yeah, they're very similar. They're both around three-hour movies. This one is about two hour, 40 minutes, something like that, two hour, 40-something. Yeah, 2.45. Also, kind of like The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, you have, like, the three distinct main characters that all have, like, very different things to do. And there's even, you can kind of see, like, okay, Harmonica... It's pretty similar to The Man with the No Name. Mm-hmm. Frank, you know, a little bit different than Angel Eyes, but sort of similar. And then I think um, Cheyenne and Tuco are pretty pretty similar. Yeah, absolutely. But this movie throws a fourth main character in there that The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly has no counter for. And I think that's actually one of the areas where this movie 
really shines. I mean, we might as well say it. It's, uh, I forget her name. It's Claudia. Claudia Cardinale. That's or it, Cardinale yes. or Cardinale. I, yeah, I'm not Cardinal Italian. Cardinale or Cardinale. I, I take great pride in that. Um, so if I'm <laughs> saying it wrong, apologies. I've, I'll say, I mean, I've, I've, I've come around to saying Leone rather than Leone. But I think I still kind of want to say Cardinale. Yeah, yeah. I, I really only have one complaint. It's not even really a complaint. Is that at a certain point for me, I could feel the runtime of the movie. Okay, well, it is a you very know? slow movie. For the most part, though, that's not an issue because you're just no, chewing right. all the scenery. You're bathing. You're taking in all the scenery. You're bathing you're in the beauty that is bathing, this movie. Just like Claudia Cardinale later yeah. in the film. <laughs> Bringing it all around. You bring up feeling the length, and then I brought up kind of the slow pace, and that's really how we start off this movie. It's very slow in the beginning. It's also very quiet, and this was interesting, again, as as a counter to the other Leone westerns, which open with those great pre-title sequences and the kick-ass Ennio Morricone theme. Mm -hmm. We have Ennio Morricone back here. He does, in my opinion, his best score, fantastic score, and yet we don't hear that for a while. The movie really kind of lulls you in because it's so slow and it's so quiet and we don't get that title sequence we get the credits coming up just normally like while other stuff is happening on screen and what's happening on screen isn't that much three we'll call them bandits three bandits showed show up at a train station Mm -hmm. you know in the middle of the desert this is a largely an empty train station they intimidate the one guy working there and then they also I guess tell the Native American woman who's waiting there to take off because she leaves. But there, you can just tell by the way they move, and largely through their silence and stuff, that these guys are just people not to be messed with. And of course, they're all wearing matching dusters. These guys are just like really scary. But then they all set up in their different spots, and they're all doing their own thing. They've got the one guy who he's the actor I don't really know. He's just kind of at the edge edge of the station platform, just like looking. Mm-hmm. There's Woody Strode, who's the black guy who's wearing his cowboy hat because he's got the water leaking yes, yeah. f- uh, from above down onto him. And he's like so focused, he doesn't move to, to avoid that. He just puts his hat on so he'll the hat the rain will just settle on his hat. And so you hear kind of the difference of the noises there. And then you have this other guy, Jack Elam is his name, the guy with kind of the weird eyes almost looks like he has like a lazy eye or something yeah Yeah. (laughs) and he's messing around with a fly and eventually catches it in his um in the barrel of his pistol and just keeps it there and hears it buzzing so again kind of the focus on the sound but it's super slow and this is like five six minutes this whole thing I i don't even know how long but sort of nothing has happened and yet we or at least I am. I'm, I'm just, like, intrigued in seeing where this goes, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and we also have to kind of set the literal scenery as well. I mean, it's, as you said, oh, in yeah. the middle of nowhere, but out on the horizon is just a mountain range and a mm-hmm. long track that just stretches off into nothingness. You know, right. it's just this beautiful scene that you get to take in for, like, six, eight minutes, something like that, and you're just mm-hmm. waiting for something to happen. You know, like, you're waiting... I don't want to say on the edge of your seat, but you're anxious to see what happens. You know, you're anxious to figure out what's going on. Right. It's an unusual opening because there's very little dialogue. There, the the the, um, the guy working at the station says a few things, but there's really not much. And then there's 
when, when, when I was talking about with the fly and, and the water dripping, there's no dialogue during any of that. Yeah, it's, it's a strange way to open a movie, but it, it, it works for me. It draws me in. Does it keep this same kind of like aura of mystery all throughout it? Well, not really, but that's, this is this is just the first this is just the first scene. This is this is where we really need this to get the story moving because we, I mean, if there is a complaint about this movie, and I, I've seen some people complain about this movie, the story isn't really clear until like the second half of the movie, really. Like yeah. it takes a really long way to to go with that. But I also think. I don't think there's really one story. I think there's like four different stories. I think each of the four main characters has their own story and they all they converge in the second half, but I like that each one is kind of doing their own thing for a while. All their stories come together and by the end of the movie, it's gone in a completely different direction than you thought it was going to go. When you sit down and you get through the first, you know, six, six-ish minutes of no dialogue or whatever, you think it's going to be kind of a, um, a shoot-em-up western, much like... Uh, yeah, because how that eventually concludes that yes, yeah. sequence, yeah. But then by the end of it, it's about kind of like, <laughs> like saving people and creating a town and, you know, all this, <laughs> all this kind of grand stuff. The term revisionist western gets thrown around with this movie and I don't think that's unwarranted but I, I would say this movie in, in a lot of ways is is not really just a, like a love letter to the western genre but it's like a love letter to the to the, the west like the old yes, west yeah because yeah. it's it's very much how about uh, or, or about how that is changing and I really like movies that do that that movies that kind of capture this 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 movie that like we we see this wild west and we we see how it's wild and lawless but then we also see an auction that's run by a sheriff we see business dealings you know mm-hmm. maybe they're illegal business dealings but, it, but <laughs> there's like a lot of attention paid to like the business side of things and you know and, and, and we have obviously more and more western expansion and like yeah you you have both the lawlessness of the west but the taming of the west as well exactly it's in that era it's in that era before the true end of the wild west came in like the late 1880s stuff like that yeah absolutely and you know we're getting ahead of ourselves of course because we're about to meet one of our main characters the person who i think is billed like fourth in this movie but if you ask me he's either the lead or you know the second but anyways it's charles bronson who plays the character of harmonica who is very much our Clint Eastwood, man with no name type character. I mean, he doesn't have a name. They just call him Harmonica because mm-hmm. he walks around with Harmonica at all times. But it very much a similar character. Even his introductory scene is kind of similar to a scene in A Fistful of Dollars because the whole thing is the train arrives and when the door opens, everyone, because it opens loudly and suddenly, all those three, uh, three bandits all like reach towards their guns because they're panicking. They're clearly waiting for someone here. But then it's just some guy who just throws something off the train. It's not a person getting off. And then the train starts to take off and they, and they all turn around. They're like, okay, you know, I guess we'll find this guy at the next tra- train or something. But then we hear that harmonica come in. And this is the first music we've heard the entire movie. Yeah. As the train leaves, we see that Harmonica, Charles Bronson, has gotten off on the other side of the train, and he's just staring them down, playing that harmonica. And then they have this little exchange, and, and it reminded me a lot of the 
get get three yeah exactly the fistful of dollars get three coffins ready because they're i think he asks if they're frank and they said no frank sent us and he looks over at the horses because there's three horses and he's like did you bring a horse for me and then one of the guys is like no no, it looks like we're shy one horse and then he just (laughs) very slowly just very slightly shakes his head and then says you brought two too many yeah that is so Charlie B is the coolest character in this movie. Oh, he, Bronson is is one of my favorite actors ever. I mean, I, when I was younger, I didn't have much of a... Okay, he's the guy that digs the holes in The Great Escape. You know, I'd seen him in a few things. He's one of the Magnificent Seven mm-hmm. also. But, and then I knew he had Death Wish and all that stuff. But the, the more and more movies I've seen, you know, the canon action movies, he, he had his big run as a as an old geezer action star you know the the pre- grandpa action star <laughs> yeah the grandpa action he the predate um liam neeson the predecessor of uh, liam neeson and i mean he he did that so well and then like but i kind of appreciated him as like a he kind of gives the same performance and everything and i'm talking those schlocky action movies right where there's something so cool about him but he's 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 like not great but I, but I don't think he's a bad actor. I think he nails this part, but I, I don't know how difficult of an acting role it truly is. But he is yeah. <laughs> amazing here. And he, but yeah. he's so awesome. He has that Eastwood flair to him where he can deliver a one-liner. He can really make you scared, make you threatened with with his delivery of a line. And But, but he's all, always got that cool and calmness to him you know it's it's but it's a it's a lovely performance i just can't get enough of this guy even though he doesn't have a mustache in this movie that i i miss charles bronson's mustache it's a great mustache (laughs) he's got like a broom above his lip and everything else i will say before we get too far away from the first 15 minutes of this movie this also because you brought up clint eastwood clint eastwood in the dollars trilogy is kind of like an idealized anti-hero you know he looks cool he looks sharp he wears these kind of not not like dirty clothes but like good-ish looking western clothes like you know what i mean every one and everything in this movie is dirty like yeah it's completely different than the dollars trilogy except for claudia cardinale she has some really slick outfits and stuff that are very but that's that's appropriate to her character yeah yeah but like but the world and everybody that inhabits that inhabits it except for her is dirty (laughs) you know like yeah like they're covered in dust this is a western that is that looks and feels very real oh 100 percent. and also we should uh, you know we haven't quite finished off the scene but as you can probably guess charles bronson shoots these motherfuckers and (laughs) kills them but he also gets shot himself and you think for a moment okay he's down but he gets back up and then just kind of ties his arm with his coat but what's awesome about this is that with the with the quick cut into the actual shootout for a brief moment you don't actually know who's who's shooting just like a just like not a fraction of a second when the the camera cuts from a close-up on someone back to behind Bronson's hip there's like this really brief moment where like okay who's shooting because because the um, perspective has switched so dramatically mm-hmm. so after this Charles Bronson scene let's talk about let's talk about one of my favorite things to see in all of film and that is child murder because that's coming <laughs> right up 
I mean, how can you not be blown away by this? This It's a powerful scene, actually. But yeah, so we have this guy. I guess he's like an Irish immigrant or something, right? Mm Because his name's McBain and all his kids have the red hair and everything. (laughs) Yeah. He and his his kids are getting ready for this banquet at his house, at his farm, which is an incredible location, by the way. And that house, uh, that house still stands. That's at one of those Western theme parks that I was telling you about. Oh, Last really? uh, Fistful of Dollars. Yeah, because a lot of this movie, I shouldn't say a lot of it, but some of it is filmed in Monument Valley, which is the famous locations where all the John Ford Westerns were filmed. Mm-hmm. Iconic locations. But most of this movie is still filmed in Spain. And I think all the sets would have been built in Spain and everything. And so that's where this house is. So the whole thing is he's having people over, but he's also his new wife is arriving in town. And we see briefly that there's some contention with one of his kids because he's like, well, my, you know, this isn't my mother. My mother died. And uh, so it's obviously he's remarrying. There's, again, kind of focusing on the the sound being a big thing. There's these sounds of all the birds and everything. And then the daughter gets shot. And then as Brett McBain, that's the name of the father, as he runs back to her, he gets shot a number of times. And then the boy, the one who is going to get on the carriage to go pick up the new Mrs. McBain, he gets shot. And then there's only one left because he was inside, and that's the youngest boy. He comes outside as the gang approaches. And this is where the Ennio Morricone music is really hitting hard. And I remember when I first saw this movie, I was probably in about high school. I was a big fan of the Dollars trilogy. And I'm like, okay, what's this other movie? The score took me a long time to get used to it because it's really powerful. It's overwhelming. But here especially, I think this is the first scene where you hear it. I mean, this is only really the second scene where we've had music. Yeah. There's that strong electric guitar. And that's such a weird sound in a period movie. You know what I mean? Yeah, it is. But it, it does it does manage to fit it and the scene well. Oh, it does. It does. But I think I think when I was younger and I watched this movie, I, I didn't come to that conclusion. Well, it, it's not nearly it's a as, haunting, as... It's a haunting riff. It's really kind of just... That that and it's, it, the, the harmonica even more so the harmonica earlier that we had Charles Bronson playing that's part of the score that is just so ghostly in its sound it's so awesome mm-hmm. very very different score from the Dollars trilogy even though it's Ennio Morricone and you you can tell it's Ennio Morricone but very different style so anyways this this last boy he's left alive and as these villains approach him we see one of them is Henry Fonda which is like a holy shit kind of thing, because, like, you think about this in 1968, right? Henry Fonda, I mean, yeah, he's past his prime. This is the year that Barbarella came came out. So, you know, John was, or uh, Jane was even the bigger yeah. actor in the Fonda family. But, like, Henry Fonda, he's Hollywood royalty. Yeah. Like, he's this historic actor. You know, this would be, like, Jimmy Stewart or something, you know. And not not just that, but, like, he's playing a villain here. He's playing a bad motherfucker. Like, this guy is awesome. His name is Frank. It's it's completely against type because Henry Fonda, I mean, he's... I I compared him to Jimmy Stewart on purpose because I think those those were the two actors that were, like, back in the day, those were, like, the everyman, right? Those were just, like, if you want, like, you're just... I think, like, Tom Hanks would be, like, a 90s example. Like, Tom Hanks isn't really doing that stuff now, but he's playing a villain now. It would be, like, if... 
Tom Hanks was the Joker. No, it'd be like Tom Hanks in um, No Country for Old Men if he had the Javier Bardem role. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's exactly it, yeah. I mean, it must have been jarring for audiences. Yeah, so, so for him playing a villain is insane, but for him even just appearing in this movie, this is an Italian film. Yes, it did have American funding. But this this has to be, and I've never really read much up on this, but this has to be a result of the the dollars films becoming popular in the U.S. I don't, I don't think they get they, they don't get Henry Fonda if those movies aren't big hits. And um, yeah, and Clint Eastwood wasn't made a star overnight. <laughs> yeah, Clint Eastwood became a star, so now we can get people who already are stars. And Charles Bronson was probably wasn't really a star. He's a veteran actor, and people, you know, he had been in stuff that people had seen. Yeah, people probably definitely knew about him. Anyways, Henry Fonda, Frank, they're all staring down this kid, and one of the guys says to him, he says, like, so what are we going to do with this one, Frank? And then just casually, just coldly, he's like, well, now that you've mentioned my name, you know, he pulls out his gun, and they yeah. and they kill the kid, and that's... So awesome. But what a great introduction to a villain. It is. It is. And like it really, I mean, when you have a villain killing a kid, (laughs) you know, that just shows how bad they really are, right? (laughs) Well, more than one kid, but this one in particular, because this is the, The this is the one where, this is the personal one where they're staring right at the kid. The kid, you see it in his eyes though. You really do. And then you see like tears starting to form just like a little bit. Yeah. Well, also the end of this scene might have one of the best cuts in movie history i think from the barrel of his pistol to a train chugging along i thought it was great yeah because the the next scene is when the train arrives and this is a different station than the one harmonica was just at but getting off this train is jill McBain, played by claudia cardinale or whatever the hell i'm gonna call her from now on <laughs> claudia um <laughs> possibly the most beautiful woman who has ever lived i would say absolutely gorgeous absolute stunner so this is an italian movie so everyone's like dubbed but but the but the big three are dubbing themselves claudia cardinale obviously italian actress french actress algerian actress whatever (laughs) you know i'm sure that's not her dubbing herself but whoever does it i think does a good job but i will say just her as an actress remarkable beauty but like she had a really accomplished career I, I can't really say this confidently because I haven't, there's a lot of Italian cinema I haven't seen, but I'll say she's in three of the four best Italian movies I've ever seen because she has relatively small but important roles in both Eight and a Half and La Dolce Vita, the two Federico Fellini movies, and she's in this, and so the only one she's not in is The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. You know, I haven't seen The Bicycle Thieves in some quality, quality films, so good on her. She's great here. But anyway, in this scene, she just gets off the train. She's got a couple people carrying her luggage. She looks around. There's no one to pick her up, so she's not really sure what to do. So she goes inside the train station to talk to somebody to figure out what's going on. And then as this happens, the camera doesn't follow her into the train station. The camera lingers outside, so we don't hear anything she's saying. But then it, it slowly rises up as she gets out of the train station on the other end, you know, in town. And we see that beautiful reveal coinciding with, of course, the music swelling as, as we see this town. And this is a remarkable Western town set, of course. This shot is actually completely, you know, copied for Back to the Future Part Three. There's a similar moment when Marty first sets, sets foot in 1885 Hill Valley. 
I point that out because, I mean, I, this is probably true for a lot of people, you know, our age or younger, but Back to the Future Part 3 was kind of my introduction to the Western. You know, mm-hmm. it's not a traditional Western film by any means, but <laughs> once <laughs> oh, once oh, I see, <laughs> w- once I got like really into Western films, then I like can look back at certain things like, oh, Back to the Future Part 3 is kind of like paying homage to this or something. Well, you know, going back to this shot of the town over the station, you know, because Claudia does the kind of concerned, confused look really well when yeah. she gets off the train. Oh, yeah. And you can feel that she's uncomfortable and she doesn't understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. And then, again, when you have the camera rise above the station, you expect to see this kind of very Hollywood-style Western set. You know, and and, and that would be like the point in the movie where you get that dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun kind of, you know, like yeah. Western-y sounding music and you have this kind of clean-ish Western town and people hawking things on street corners and people dressed in nice clothes walking up and down the boardwalks there and stuff. But instead the camera mm-hmm. rises and you just see like a bunch of ramshackle and like uh, yeah. uh, dusty buildings. And then one building is just like pumping like black smoke. <laughs> yeah, I, w- I was going to I was going to say it's 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 a lot more hectic than your typical like Western yeah. set. Because usually you just have like one street basically and buildings yeah. on each side. There's not much space in between the buildings here. There's more than that. There's more more space. Things are more spread out. But also there's like, it's, yeah, I don't know. It's just... Uh, well, it, it also does that kind of frontier town look really well. Like you realize like, oh, this is like the middle of nowhere. You know, this yeah. is the closest town for like 100 miles, you know? <laughs> so at any rate, Mrs. McBain, Jill McBain, she catches a, um, what would you call this? Because it's, it's not a wagon. Well, it kind of I is a wagon. I want to call it just a taxi cab. Yeah. Well, but I, I, I guess, I guess it is a wagon. I think of wagons as being covered, but we specifically call it's those an uncovered wagons. wagon. So, yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's a convertible. <laughs> it's a convertible. Yeah. So she, she, um, is getting a ride from this little kook from town, and and he's asking her where she wants to go, and she's like, Sweetwater, and then he doesn't know what that is, and then she's like, Oh, it's it's Brett McBain's farm, and then and that's great too because you can kind of see. Oh, she she doesn't know anything about yeah this area like yeah. like she she you can you can imagine oh he told her it's called Sweetwater and she's picturing like oh it's probably this beautiful thing <laughs> but really it's just in the middle of the desert and this guy laughs at at her for <laughs> calling it Sweetwater and he it's, laughs for great. like a long time he's like you idiot <laughs> listen he's nervous in front of such a beautiful woman what can I say any man would be but before they get there. And this is where we see a lot of the Monument Valley shots as he almost drunkenly runs over many, many uh, pedestrians and people working on the railroad <laughs> and stuff because he's just like, he's going like 85 in a school zone here. Yeah. He's just going really fast. Then he stops at a, uh, like a frontier saloon that doubles as like a laundry. Yeah. And maybe an inn as well, I guess. And yeah. Because cause we see harmonicas there, right? We don't really know what he's doing there, but... Anyways, she's upset because she just wants to get to the McBain house, but she also kind of has to go along with him. So this guy just goes in to get a drink, but then she kind of, she follows him in. You know, the bartender's being weird to her. Not too bad, but a little weird. And he's he's definitely checking out her chest. So, you know. (laughs) Yeah, sure. And then another person enters and this is Cheyenne. And this happens after, I guess, like a, an escape you know, because Cheyenne is in chains. He was being taken somewhere because he had been arrested. We see he's a wanted man later, but mm-hmm. but we just hear these gunshots, and then he 
comes in alone, presumably having just killed people. Cheyenne has, you know, there's this is so this is Jason Robards, and he's there's a presence about him. He's, he makes everyone uncomfortable, of course. Although you can see kind of um, Jill, she she has like a strength about her, even even in moments like this that I think are really just um, impressive for a woman of this time. You know, if mm-hmm. you're thinking of this as like a period film, obviously, I'm, I'm not saying like actress actor wise necessarily, but I'm thinking like, okay, how are women usually in like the 19th century in the old west and she's not easily intimidated or or she probably is intimidated as much as anybody but she makes a point in being resolute and not trying to show that i think and that yes, that comes yeah. through in the in the physical performance i think but eventually we find that harmonica is also there because harmonica starts playing Cheyenne talks to him for a bit and eventually there's a really tense scene where someone who is about to pull a gun on Cheyenne Cheyenne stops him and then basically makes him shoot the cuffs off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then Cheyenne's men come in, and these guys are all in their dusters, of course. So, But then Harmonica stops them. He asks them about the dusters. And I love how he phrases this, too. He's like, I, I saw three of these dusters, you know, however long ago at the train station. Inside these three dusters, there were three men. Inside the men were three bullets. And it's like, I love like how slow he, he uh, gets to the point of like, yeah. It's almost poetic, really, you know? It is, it is. And so they, you know, Cheyenne says something like, hey, listen, only my gang wears these dusters. These weren't my people. And I don't know anyone dumb enough to pretend to be a part of my gang, right? Because yeah. we can see that these guys mean business. You know, this guy, his men were supposed to spring him. They were late, and he still freed himself, killed however many people outside, you know? Like, yeah, you don't want to mess with Cheyenne. Yeah, and you know, I also, I want to backtrack just for a second. The reintroduction of Harmonica oh, it's in beautiful. this scene is amazing because Cheyenne throws, like, a, an oil lamp that's hanging from yeah. the ceiling towards him and it just lights him up in the corner of the room oh yeah it's a great it's, shot and that's also the score too because that's it starts the harmonica but then when the light sh- gets there then the electric guitar comes in too yeah it's yeah great which actually speaking of that i know you hate cartoons patrick but uh bob's burgers they have a reference to this movie in one of their episodes but the main character is called banjo and they're like yeah whenever he comes on screen uh, the banjo plays and he carries a banjo with him and plays it does he have a bird in his backpack? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he's also a bear. Classic, classic stuff with Banjo-Kazooie. <laughs> it really is, yeah. What about Banjo-Tooie? The far superior game. It, it really is, is, absolutely, absolutely. Banjo-Kazooie is, is, is a fun single-player adventure game. Banjo-Tooie is a more enjoyable one-player experience as well as incorporating some really fun multiplayer. They basically just have a GoldenEye clone in there. Which yeah. is amazing. Yeah, dude, do you remember Where the you just uh, shoot grenades at people and stuff? It's amazing. Yeah, and like that in the in the Mayan ruins or whatever it was. There are a lot of different multiplayer modes, but definitely the one we most played was the um, the Golden Eye yeah. <laughs> Golden Eye Clone. I guess that's what it is. It's like the exact same yeah, mechanics and, you, and everything. And what did you have? You had like normal eggs and fire you eggs. Had ice, grenade, ice eggs. Ice. You had fire eggs. Oh, then you had the eggs with like the little tiny. Toy bird the inside. clockwork eggs. Yeah. <laughs> Those were awesome. My, my brother and I used to do these things. One of us would set up a uh, fort. There was like one specific map we were in, but there was like a because you could have you could have mines. You, you some of the eggs yeah. were mines. You oh, that's up. right. So yeah. you could set yourself up in this like area where there was only one way to enter, and just put a bunch of mines in there. And we would know the other one was there 
So we would have to just keep using the clockwork things into just blowing up all these mines <laughs> until we could try and get there. <laughs> it was so much fun. It's great. Bring back Banjo-Tooie. Yeah, so then Jill eventually makes it to the McBain farm. And at this point, you know, the friends or whoever, you know, who were going to come over for the banquet, they're all there. McBain's dead. The family's dead. So she's very saddened by this. And she tells everyone that she's, you know, she's the wife because because she hasn't met any of these people. Then after McBain is buried, someone finds somewhere nearby part of a duster they take it to her and they're like, you wouldn't know this because you're new in town, but this is as good as a signature. This is Cheyenne's man. Cheyenne did this. And and we don't really know if she believes that yet. Mm-hmm. And later on, we're, we're still not really sure, but it's kind of interesting. We, we can s- sort of see how this is progressing now at this point. You know, this is Cheyenne's gang and, and Frank's gang. We can tell Frank, obviously, something against Cheyenne. We don't really know what. Yeah, it, it's, it's almost kind of confusing to follow. Because you're throwing around a bunch of names, I don't. It's almost like a murder mystery, but less mystery. I guess, I guess if that makes sense. Well, it's you're no. Like, why I mean, did they do it? <laughs> who exactly did it? Well, the, yeah, that's the thing. It's like we know who did it. You can still have a mystery. Like not all mysteries are whodunits. You know what I mean? Like it, yeah. You know, Columbo, the greatest <laughs> mystery television series ever. Every single one, you know who did it, except there's there's one episode where they kind of throw a twist in there because there's identical twins, and you don't actually know which of the two twins <laughs> did the murder. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, I would still, I would say this is a mystery at this point because we know it's Frank, but we also know he posed as Cheyenne or, or had his men pose as Cheyenne. We don't know why. We don't know what what's the significance of the home of, of Sweetwater for a long time. And, it, you know, it takes a while for us to kind of find these answers. But I like that. I think it's a, it's a story that's engagingly told, I'll say. Yeah, I agree. Jill McBain decides to stay overnight in this home. And while she does, she gets spooked by some asshole playing the harmonica outside. <laughs> it's We obviously know it's harmonica. He, he lights a match, and she actually shoots out there which again this is jill mcbain she's not taking shit from anyone like she's yeah yeah i was uh <laughs> i could only imagine standing up there playing the harmonica in the dark some woman shoot at you with a shotgun like oh my god but then, yeah. but then it, it also doesn't make sense though really if you think about it because she saw him in the bar and he was playing the harmonica in the bar she she, she should know who it is well she knows she knows who it is but that doesn't mean he's not being a fucking creep and hanging outside this <laughs> This uh, recently widowed yeah. woman's home okay, that's fair. with the potential to break in yeah. at any given moment and, and heavily armed. Yeah, no, I, whether you know who it is or not, I mean, it's not like they had, they really hit it off. It's not like they have a, <laughs> yeah. they truly know each other. Yeah, it's you know all they were mean? friends, you're right. <laughs> Anyways, in the morning, she opens the door and stops because there's someone in the door and it takes us a long time to see who it is because that shot just holds but it's cheyenne we kind of expect this to be a harmonica because we know harmonica was hanging out there the night before but it's cheyenne cheyenne invites himself in acknowledges that like hey people are saying that i killed your family i didn't and he's like i I don't think this home is worth a damn thing to me like why would i do this whether she believes this or not she doesn't really seem to care she just like wants to move on and she's like yeah thinking what are you doing here there's also a great little moment where she's trying to prepare the fire because she's going to make him coffee but then she can't light it 
and so he ends up doing it and I, I like that that's like she's not she's not your traditional like 19th century housewife you know what i mean because she needs to be like helped on this like we think of like lighting a fire and stuff like maybe not as yeah. typical housewife duties but back in the 19th century if that's how you're making coffee yeah i guess that is something a housewife would do and she she can't really do that i think that scene serves to show that she is new right to the frontier and this is a life that she's never had to live before that she is from the big city i would say not just the frontier i would imagine you would have to do that even not in the frontier right i mean even in new orleans i think she's just bad at lighting fires (laughs) well no she's just never had the like the independent kind of live like we 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 eventually learn what she did in new orleans which you know maybe plays a factor into this maybe it doesn't i don't know but (laughs) at any rate cheyenne asks her what she what she knows about some dude playing a harmonica so meanwhile we also have this scene where frank who we hadn't seen in a while frank of course henry fonda meets with his boss who's uh, do you remember what condition he has he's got like a I thought he was, like, shot in the spine or something. But anyways, he's got, like, a... Yeah, he's got crutches, and he's got, like, a neck brace. And it's, it's this guy who lives in a train, which is awesome. Oh, absolutely. And he's actually... This is this guy's name is uh, Morton, and Morton's actually upset that Frank killed the McBains. He said, you're only supposed to scare him, and Frank has a great line. People scare better when they're dying. Yeah. I love that line. There's, there's a lot of <laughs> yeah. great lines from Frank, and really from everybody. We've already touched upon some of Harmonica's... So Morton is is um, paying Frank to do something. Frank is a gangster. Morton is a businessman. Yeah, he's he, he's a railroad tycoon whose dream it is to have a have a rail line stretch from the East Coast to the West Coast. He wants to see the Pacific. Absolutely, yeah. But he works with these shady figures like Frank, and the whole thing is like he's trying to get Frank to understand business. Like Frank Frank is in the business of you know, shoot first, ask questions later. And he, this entire time he's like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like money is actually more powerful than a bullet. And and that's yeah. something that... Meanwhile, after Cheyenne leaves the McBain home, Jill stumbles upon Harmonica in the stable. And he's really super creepy with her. Yeah. You know, he's, he makes like he's going <laughs> to yeah. rape her. He rips part of her dress but then tells her to go get him some water. And so, so the two of them go over to the well, and while they're there, Harmonica says, hey, when you hear a weird noise, just get down on the ground. <laughs> and uh, this is while two horses and riders are riding by, and then they hear the weird noise, which I guess is a gun being cocked. Yes, yeah. And Harmonica shoots him. And so at this point, they're like, okay, what's what's Harmonica's deal? Like, he's seems awfully close to, to being a rapist, but then also, like, he's protecting her but then who is he protecting her from like who are these people and meanwhile cheyenne has witnessed this whole thing he's watching with his men so then there's this so there's this other guy and this guy don't really know his deal the first time we see him is at the mcbain farm where he's one of the people that identified the the part of the duster and said that's cheyenne's men Earlier, we had a scene where Harmonica threatened him. Yes, yeah. Harmonica wanted to meet with Frank. Again, going back to the train station, he thought he was going to meet with Frank. But instead, Frank sent these other three men to try and kill him. And he thinks that this it's this guy's fault. So, yeah, this guy has some kind of working relationship with Frank. We don't really know what. He's clearly not like a an assassin. Like, he's not one of those guys. But he's just a, he's just a sketchy businessman, I guess, probably. Yeah, d- doesn't he run like the Chinese laundry or something? Yeah, because this is this next scene. This is where we see him. Jill goes inside to his place of business, and 
is demanding with him and says like, hey, I need to speak with Frank. I, I want to deal with him directly. Mm-hmm. And then so he runs off to Morton's train, which is where Frank is speaking with Morton. And Frank immediately is like, you know, this, you idiot, this is a, this is a trap. Like you weren't supposed to, <laughs> like, because I think what she said was like, I know everything. Yeah. I think, you know, something like vague like that. So while this has happened, Harmonica cl- climbs on top of the train, which Frank recognizes. So he's, Frank's just going to take his damn time. And eventually the train stops to pick up some of his uh, gang members. That's when Harmonica is captured. And when Harmonica's captured, they finally kick off this other guy, this, you know, sketchy businessman guy. And there was a great line earlier where well, I think the guy's like, no, 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 no one followed me. You got to trust me. <laughs> and Frank's like, how can I trust a man who wears both suspenders and a belt? The man can't even trust his own pants. Great moment. And, of course, a setup to what he does here because he shoots him. After kicking him off the train, he shoots him in, e- in each suspender side or whatever. Yeah. And then he shoots the belt buckle. In these spaghetti westerns especially, maybe just westerns in general, but spaghetti westerns, everyone's a fucking perfect shot if they want to be. But, like, that's that's <laughs> awesome. That's so cool. So this guy gets killed. Meanwhile, we also see that Cheyenne is hanging on under the train, <laughs> which is important because he, after Frank gets off the train, climbs aboard and starts just killing people. He does the thing where he shoots someone through the glass while he's hanging down below. This is while Harmonica is tied up. And he kills a few more people, and he has, does this awesome thing where they they think they know where he is because they see his boot hanging down. This is the best. And then as they go to <laughs> approach to shoot it, they get shot through the boot because that's actually his hand with a pistol through the boot, <laughs> which is awesome. Yeah, so it was cool. really great. <laughs> I really like that whole scene, actually. I thought like it was done really, really well. Yeah, it's a fun scene. I mean, this overall, as much as I love this movie, and, and again, to go back to kind of the comparisons to... The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, and the Dollars Trilogy as a whole. Dollars Trilogy is a lot more fun than this movie is. Mm-hmm. Just has a more fun tone. This is a little bit more somber, a little bit more serious, a little bit more sad with the with the Jill character, especially. This is the most fun scene, I think, in terms of just this. And, and there's a scene later with Frank and Harmonica, I guess. But, you know, the scenes that kind of capture that sort of playfulness of, of that, the adventure playful adventure kind of side of of the Sergio Leone movies, I guess. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. So Cheyenne and Harmonica confront Morton. Obviously, Cheyenne frees Harmonica, and they, they have the opportunity to kill Morton, but they're like, yeah, it's not worth it. Like, you're, you're saying they're just, like, looking at him with his crutches and stuff. It's like, yeah, this is, we don't need to kill you. This is, you live a, live a sad existence. We don't have to do anything. Cheyenne missed all the Frank stuff, so Harmonica's like, hey, there's another guy. So, but Frank has meanwhile gone to deal with Jill. Mm-hmm. And we eventually see that this dealing with Jill, at first it's intimidating, but eventually it's seducing. Uh, th- that scene, I mean, I, we're skipping ahead a bit, but just talk to that seducing scene, that love scene, if you will. Really weird. And it's it's uncomfortable because it's like what, what we know about Jill, she is not into this. She has no business being into this. But it's almost shot like... Like she's really into it? <laughs> like the two are in love or something and i just you know if i had a complaint because i because i don't think her performance gives off that she's into it I, I i don't think her performance betrays what that character is actually feeling but it's definitely the dialogue is is kind of all over the place in oh yeah he says something about like you could you even could you even could you ever love a man especially the man who murdered your husband or something 
Yeah, and then he's you know calling her a what do you call her a whore, and then that's this is when you. Find oh yeah, because this is where he reveals that what he learned about her is that she was a prostitute in New Orleans, and that is presumably how Brett McBain met her. She's probably better at giving hand jobs than lighting a fire. You know, that's. <laughs> yeah, I just picture she's at like a brothel or something. And someone else takes care of the fire stuff. You know, <laughs> someone else takes care of the utilities. <laughs> But yeah, it's, a, it's an uncomfortable scene. I, I hesitate. I mean, part of me wants to say it's really risque for the period, but like, yeah, 1968, the same year as Barbarella. Like, it's 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 PG-13. It is, yeah. It's a risque PG-13. It's nothing. It's nothing overboard. But it's <laughs> it's it's something. So me, meanwhile, and this is this is all this has happened after a giant shipment of like lumber and nails and all this crap arrives at the McBain farm. And Jill realizes that my husband was going to build a train station at his at his home. Yeah. So meanwhile, Cheyenne and Harmonica decide to start building the station because <laughs> Harmonica, yeah. who apparently has some kind of law degree or business degree that we don't know about, understands that the McBains lose everything if the station isn't built by the time the train gets there. Yeah. This is a fun scene. I like the way it's shot because Harmonica's delivering all this dialogue while he's like measuring stuff out and then <laughs> and then eventually Cheyenne catches on and realizes what they're doing, but Cheyenne's men are still just sitting around there and eventually he's like, Hey, get your asses to work. Like I just I like that scene. Yeah, it that's like the other kind of cute, funny scene. Oh, also I forgot to um touch upon a key moment that we'll come back later, but when Frank captures Harmonica, he asks him who he is, and Har- Harmonica gives him a couple different names. And Frank is like, "What are you talking about? Those those people are dead." And Harmonica's like, "Yeah, I, you should know. You killed them." He's basically Harmonica's like almost the embodiment of like of revenge or something uh, of of revenge, but of of Frank's past sins like come back to haunt him. And I, and I yeah. really like that. And this guy feels not only larger than life, but like. You know, harmonica feels like almost ghostly. Like going back to the scene where he's just playing the harmonica outside of um, Jill's house at night. Like that's like he's just creepy. There's yeah. this like something about <laughs> yeah, this yeah. guy. You can't. You don't quite know what he is. He just makes you feel uncomfortable. Yeah, exactly. So then there is an auction for the McBain property. I was going to say she's. She just wants to leave town. No, she doesn't really. This is this is Frank's doing. Yeah. Fra- because in and Frank's men intimidate all the people at the auction who are about to bid to keep things really low, and the poor sheriff who's played by <laughs> Keenan Wynn, he keeps turning to Jill and is like, "Hey, are you sure you don't want to have a minimum bid or something? Because like, looks like you're gonna lose this for nothing." Yeah. And she, but she, but she's she's also got like uh, one of Frank's men behind her. And so she's not in the business. She's not in a good spot to potentially stand up for herself here. But then Harmonica, who's been watching it all at the very last moment, enters and bids $5,000. And they're like, holy shit, that's a huge huge bid. Do you have it? And he's like, yeah, I've got it right here. And he brings in Cheyenne because the bounty on Cheyenne is (laughs) $5,000. And this is a little the good, the bad, and the ugly, too. It is, yeah. um, (laughs) <laughs> well, I think I already said this, but yeah, Cheyenne is a little Tuco. Harmonica is definitely a little man with no name. I think Frank and Angel Eyes are different enough, but 
I think these two, there's definitely some similarities. So with Cheyenne having been turned in, Cheyenne is taken to go on a train because they don't have like a prison that could suit him here in town. It's, so while he go, he gets taken on the train, but then a couple of his men also buy one-way tickets. So you're thinking like, okay, yeah, they'll, they'll bust him out. <laughs> this is also when Frank comes to confront Cheyenne. Again, this is, he asks him again who he is, and he gives him another name of some guy that Frank killed. Did I say Cheyenne? Yeah, I said you Cheyenne, did. didn't I? I keep saying Cheyenne instead of Harmonica. It's, uh, it's like, I don't deal well with names that aren't proper names, I guess, like Harmonica. <laughs> Okay, so Frank comes and uh, approaches Harmonica. This is at a saloon. Jill goes upstairs to have a bath. Frank offers to buy the property back from Harmonica for $5,001 because he says, you know, even someone like yourself ought to be able to earn a profit. Mm-hmm. But Harmonica obviously doesn't doesn't take him up on that offer and then turns him down in the coolest way possible when he takes a shot and then asks the bartender how much that is and he says it's a dollar and he just takes the dollar that was part of the $5,001 and puts it in the shot glass. Yeah, it's great. And then meanwhile, while this is all happening, because so we skipped over a scene earlier, but Frank has turned against Morton and Frank basically has Morton under house arrest or under train arrest. Like he's being watched by Frank's <laughs> under, men. Under train arrest, yeah. But Morton kind of tests his theory and goes to Frank's men and like, okay, and just offers them money and like, will you kill this guy for me? And we see in this scene that it works, but Frank doesn't even know that yet, but Harmonica looks out and notices that everybody, all the people with guns gathering, and he's like, okay. He, he thinks he's he knows what's going on. Yeah. Frank goes outside and Frank knows something's wrong. Like there's just something amiss. I think I think this is like the emptiness of the town. I think people are kind of just clearing out thinking something's up and he's yes, like, yeah. "Okay, what's?" But he doesn't see he doesn't see anybody. And meanwhile, Frank goes upstairs, busts open the door that behind which Jill is bathing and Jill has like a line like, "I have a feeling we're going to hear that funny sound again or something when he looks out there because all these people are gearing up to shoot Frank, but Harmonica actually helps Frank. How does he help him first? What, oh, I know, I know how he helps him at the end, but what, what, what does he do the first time? Do you remember? He just kind of stands around and he notices the the gun barrel poking through the sign. And as soon as Frank is oh yeah, coming, yeah, he he shoots the guy on the um up at it's like some theater, some playhouse. Yes, yeah. Banner. Harmonica shoots the first guy, and then at this point, Frank knows okay, my men are trying to kill me. And Frank takes care of a few of them until the last one who's on top of a building with his gun peeking out over like a painted on clock. And Harmonica says something like, "Uh, boy, time sure flies. It's already past whatever. (laughs) And then then, uh, Frank looks up at the clock and then shoots the guy. And then there's this great confrontation between harmonica and jill where jill is like they were going to those were his men they were going to kill him and you and you saved him and he's like no no, no i didn't he says i didn't let them kill him and that's not the same thing so you yeah. know at this point <laughs> he's planning on killing frank we know that but yeah. he's just he wants it done on his terms which is great because it really of the the motivations I would I would say they're most clear. I would say for Frank because Frank just Frank's are the most simple motivations. He just wants the McBain farm for purposes of starting a town and getting wealthy. They're they're less clear, I guess, for the villains or sorry, not for the villains, for the good guys. I think part of Cheyenne is Cheyenne genuinely likes Jill. I think he feels a real connection there. 
yeah, and wants and he, to do right by her. And he's kind of just an outlaw who's been sucked into this. A little bit, yeah. And then, meanwhile, like, Harmonica. Harmonica doesn't quite have the same relationship with Jill that Cheyenne does. But he clearly, like, wants to protect her. We don't really know why. And then and then it's like, okay, you get the impression his, especially at this point, he, he just kind of got pulled into the, his real thing, his real beef is with Frank, and he just kind of got pulled into this because Frank is involved in this. Yeah, yeah. So Frank then, you know, realizing his men betrayed him, he rides over to Morton's train, sees that there's just been mass slaughter, and this is from Cheyenne's men freeing him, and he sees that Morton is still alive, but barely, and he's crawling towards a puddle. Frank considers killing him, but then just decides, yeah, I'll just let him die. Meanwhile, Cheyenne makes his way back to the McBain farm, and again, he has he, he speaks with her for a while. She, I believe, is able to make him coffee this time more successfully, and they look out and observe that Frank, or fuck, I did it again, uh, that Harmonica is just chilling outside. He's just, like, waiting while they're building the railroad. He's not doing anything. And they kind of discuss, like, well, what's he up to? And they're not really sure. But eventually, Frank shows up, speaks with Harmonica a bit, and I think says something like, I, I, I want to know, who are you, what's your deal? Harmonica's like, okay, I'll tell you, but only at the point of death. So they're, they're getting ready for a standoff here. At this point, Frank doesn't really have much of a reason to do this, other than he's just, I think he's just that threatened by Harmonica. That, like, if he doesn't handle this issue now, it's going to just be a pain in his ass for the rest of his life, probably, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. At this point, Frank may be a little bit of a nothing to lose. And so it's like, okay, what does he have to do? He might as well go out in a gunfight. And then we get we, we see this flashback. And we saw glimpses of this flashback earlier. We would see it. It was very fuzzy. And now it's coming into focus. We have a younger Henry Fonda. Henry Fonda with a lot of dyed hair <laughs> and some nice makeup. Yeah. Approaching Very nice. <laughs> an archway. And and this archway, there is a boy who's a very, you know, a well-cast young Charles Bronson, I'll say. No, yeah, I, uh, I totally agree. So Frank is here at this archway where this young harmonica is. And harmonica is standing and he's got someone on top of his shoulders who's being hanged by a noose and which is like a automatically just like a horrific thing to see really uncomfortable and then Mm -hmm. what frank does is frank takes a harmonica puts it in the young boy's mouth and he says something i think like something like you know go ahead and play and you know like your brother's is something make whatever line he says makes it clear that the person above him is his brother and the scene goes on for quite a while but eventually, in this great slow motion shot, the boy, his legs give out and he falls. The harmonica falls from his mouth. He hits the ground, you know, so his brother dies. And then right when that flashback's over, really quickly, they draw guns and harmonica shoots Frank. Frank turns and he's clearly been wounded, but there's a moment where you think like, okay, maybe he's... he's still alive but because he tries to put his gun back in the holster but then he just misses the holster and then he falls to the ground it's great stuff yeah it's it's a really great looking death scene yeah oh absolutely and harmonica walks over 
and you you just see it in in Frank's eyes. He just like he knows he's dying now. He just needs to know. And harmonica just takes the harmonica and puts it in Frank's mouth. Yeah, it, it, it's <laughs> what a it's it's what it, a mic drop. It's like poetic justice. You know, it's all coming full circle. You know, it's just it, oh, it's great. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I I can't describe it other than it just being great. It's a great scene to watch. And exactly. The whole movie has kind of been building up to this point, and it's just fantastic. The shootout, the standoff, is incredibly dramatic. Again, the score hitting so hard on that, um, on the flashback and stuff. But at the same time, it's so abrupt to come back to the actual shooting mm-hmm. because all of the, and I'm just talking about like not in the movie, because in the movie there's build up to this moment throughout. But in the scene itself, the build up is all through flashback. The buildup isn't these two staring each other down, and I just think it's worth pointing out in contrast to any of the other Leone spaghetti westerns, like The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, where it's five minutes of close-ups on those guys' faces (laughs) all looking at each other and stuff, and it's like, that's brilliant, but this, completely different, but still works just about as well, I would say. Yeah, because there's more weight behind what's about to happen on screen, whereas when you're just cutting back and forth between people's faces after a while, it just gets a little silly. (laughs) <laughs> I, I completely disagree and, and again in regards to good the bad and the ugly I think that I think the preceding two hours and 35 minutes earns that moment I think there's so much being said in those face close-ups but here I understand what, the, what you mean here with the there is a lot of weight here and there's there's the weight of everything that harmonica is his entire I mean his entire identity right he is harmonica he doesn't have a name his name was given to him by Frank it was placed in his mouth by Frank. Ew. But then it's also like the the weight of Frank's sins. Like there's there's just a lot going on here. But at any rate, Jill and Cheyenne, of course, are happy to see that Harmonica has won. But Cheyenne and Harmonica both decide to leave. Jill says something to Harmonica like, oh, I hope to see you again soon. And he's like, eh, maybe. Like, because he, he, he doesn't know what the fuck he's going to do yeah, now. He's like, like well, his, uh, his entire life's goal has, has been achieved. Like, what was he even going to do now? So those two take off. Meanwhile, Jill prepares to take water outside to all the people working on the railroad. As, as, those, as those two heroes ride off, we see Cheyenne falls off his horse, and we see that he was actually wounded in the train getaway, and he's dying. So that's probably really the reason he wanted to leave Jill. Because you do get the impression he wanted to stay there with her and just be with her, even if not in a romantic way, just that there was a yeah. connection there. Yeah, it's it's almost like she, I don't want her to have to be emotionally widowed again. Again, yeah, exactly. So it's really just Harmonica left, and then we, the movie ends with Jill, like I said, taking the water out to the workers. And then it's shots like this, really, where you can appreciate this the, the budget that this movie is working with in, in mm-hmm. comparison, again, to the other Leone Westerns. I guess The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly has that Civil War scene where there's a lot of extras. But we do get a couple scenes here where it's just hundreds of extras. We saw it earlier with the wagon, you know, the, the wagon going through the desert. And we saw it with the train um, where Jill was getting off the train. And all the all the livestock, all the everything going on, and we see it here too with all the railroad construction. And that is how the movie ends. Jim, what did you think about Once Upon a Time in the West? One word. Fantastic. 
pretty much like I said at the beginning, it is this epic Western. And it's more than one word, but go ahead. It does feel a little long by the end of it, but it doesn't matter with this movie because it's just all so amazing to watch unfold. You have this storyline that you rightly explained that is kind of shared between four people, but then comes together near the end. It's just so interesting to watch unfold in front of you on the screen. And then everything on the screen is just so beautiful to look at, whether it's dirty cowboys in like a, in like a dirty saloon. Or whether it's like these beautiful, glorious shots of Monument Valley. You know, it's just all so, just fantastic. I, I I don't know how to describe it other than that. It's just all fantastic. All the acting, in my opinion, is on point. I don't think there's a bad actor in the movie. There's yeah, the few... four leads are all, all fantastic. I, I was going to say, there's only one kind of bad bit of dubbing that I noticed. And that was at the very beginning with the old station master there. You know what? I, w- I wanted to bring him up to specifically for the dubbing because I'm pretty sure he's dubbed by the same guy that was like the old coffin maker guy in A Fistful of Dollars. Oh. It's just kind of a goofy, <laughs> funny voice. But yeah. I can't confirm that, but that's my suspicion. Yeah, I mean, but, uh, I'd, but I'd that guy is, he's you. the worst dubbed in A Fistful of Dollars. So maybe, <laughs> maybe the, the, the dub actor, not that great. Or, or in the case of A Fistful of Dollars, I think it was uh, an issue of the actor being a little too animated on uh you know on screen whereas that's hard to match with the dubbing i don't think that was really the case here yeah and then even even the kid actors uh they were fine for the amount of screen time that they had there were just so many interesting things to look at in the movie as well mainly claudia cardinal but yeah it will exactly yeah but uh, yeah and it kind of helped you forget that the movie was was two hours and 45 minutes there were a few slow parts. Oh, Claudia, here. by the way, Claudia Cardinal also in the original Pink Panther movie. I just remembered that. Oh, really? <laughs> so she's probably dubbed in that too, but maybe, I, I don't know. It's been so long since I've seen that. I, I like the Pink Panther movies, and I don't like the original. I, I think it's a boring as hell movie. A Shot in the Dark, amazing. Pink Panther Strikes Again, The Return of the Pink Panther, all that stuff's great. I just did not care all that much for the original Clouseau mystery adventure. <laughs> Hot take. You heard it here first, folks. I don't know if I, a shot in the dark is everybody's favorite, so I don't know about that. I don't really have any complaints about this movie. Not even the runtime, really. It was just. But you, you know. keep you keep mentioning it like it's. A well, I I, I do, but but it's not even really a complaint because like for me it doesn't detract from the movie. It was just my ass started okay. to hurt a little bit, you know. I was like, <laughs> like Batman, like the new Batman movie, fucking long as hell. But yeah, the, well, it doesn't mean I'm going to see it. So, well, exactly. Um, I mean, okay. I, well, yeah. Anyways. What about you, Patrick? What do you think? I've, I've thought about this a lot. I mean, first of all, obviously, I love it. I love this movie. The Western, I love I love the genre. This, I love the spaghetti Western in particular. This is clearly among the best. Mm-hmm. So basically for 25 years now, give or take, I think there was probably one, a good six months to a year in which Jaws was my favorite movie. But basically for 25 years, Jurassic Park has been my favorite movie. <laughs> And I'll admit that it used to be a secure number one, and over over recent years, it's been threatened by two movies in particular. It's been threatened by The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and 2001 A Space Odyssey. Now, I, Once Upon a Time in the West, because it's comparable to those two movies in particular for two very, one not superficial and then one superficial reason. It's obviously the same director as The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Can I really say The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly is better than this? confidently no i don't think i can i think they're about the same and i think it might depend on my mood which which i prefer this is certainly a more somber film less fun but still has a lot of the same qualities 
and you know it was a slightly better score i would even say but anyways and then the other one is 2001 space odyssey came out in 1968 just as this did can i really say that that 2001 space odyssey is my favorite film from 1968 i'm not sure i can anymore it's definitely one of those two movies it's not going to be planet of the apes or rosemary's baby or you know just to name a few other movies that came out in 68 what else oh um oh uh, what's that uh targets classic film from 1968 Big inspiration for this you. podcast, even though you probably don't know what that is. No, no clue. <laughs> it's currently the banner photo on our Twitter. It might not be when this episode comes out, but um, it's a movie about drive-in theaters. Oh. <laughs> um, it's a great movie. Boris Karloff's last great role. But anyways, this might be my favorite movie. It's very close to it if it's not. It's it's certainly that, like I said, that I used to have a definitive number one. Now it's it's one through four are essentially ties and yeah, this is, is a great claim to it. And the reasons for that being, I, th- I love the way the story unfolds, how it, it starts kind of independently with these different stories, which we don't even always know right off the bat, but we kind of, as we learn about them, and then eventually they all get merged. And they get merged in a compelling way. Of course, there's the, the filmmaking, which Sergio Leone, among my favorite film, I've always said Alfred Hitchcock's my favorite director, you know, I part of that's I've seen dozens of films by him. I've only seen six movies from Sergio Leone. I think he only directed seven, but like pound for pound, his movies are as good as anybody's. So I love the filmmaking. He has the the great intense close-ups, which it helps that he's got very good actors, but those close-ups can communicate so much, especially with Bronson in this movie. Yeah. And then the uh, he's got those beautiful wide shots too, obviously of the landscape and everything. Which cinematic would be a way to describe pretty much. Oh every, sure, yeah, every beautiful, shot. cinematic, breathtaking, and the score is really a big thing too. I, I do think probably the best, not just the best score of any, from Ennio Morricone, but I would say the best score in in, in a movie I've seen. You know, I, there's a few maybe that I'd compare. You know, Vertigo, excellent score, but I I think this is probably. The best score I've ever heard. I, I the the song the the track, "Man with the Harmonica" is just like my favorite thing ever. Basically, just go listen to it. <laughs> Check it out on YouTube, Spotify, whatever. I adore this film. I really. I, I wouldn't remove any scenes, but if I could change a scene around, it would be the Frank and Jill love scene sort of thing. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. For me, it doesn't really... You're just saying you wanted to see more of Clark. Clark I, well, Herman's that would be that nice, too, to, to I be would want to make the scene 20 minutes long <laughs> and much more much more graphic with the nudity. Yeah, I mean... Is that know, where I'd we're be, headed? Is, be, that, is that what we're talking about here? I'd be okay no, with that. No, ex- explain, explain. No, I, I just mean, like, because, again, it didn't really work for me in the sense that it didn't really... Like, I, it was confusing to watch, almost, because it was... The, the, the two of them were talking, like, um, this was something that they were both enjoying or like i don't know if the acting was off or i like i i don't know it was just a weird scene that kind of like emotionally confused me if that makes sense i understand that i think they could have done something and i mean this is hard to do because frank has already murdered a child but like you could have a scene like this where you really emphasize frank is a monster except in the moment frank i i, I do think the, the we were kind of talking about what the scene means for Jill as a character and how Jill isn't really into it, but the, you know, the performance or the way it's shot, maybe that's not the most clear. I think really the focus should, should probably be more on, on Frank. I think, I think the whole point is Frank doesn't see what he's doing is wrong. 
and I think you could yeah. maybe do something with that with this character that I you know maybe the film doesn't really do but I don't know it's a, yeah I understand what you mean going back to the characters for a second this movie has really interesting characters because you have this kind of I don't want to call him an evil industrialist but Morton yeah yeah you have this man he's a corrupt dude yeah yeah he's corrupt he's driven by greed he's also driven by some kind of strange want to see the pacific yeah he's got the focus on the water which is why he it's key that he dies right outside a puddle because he he looks at that (laughs) painting and then you even hear the crashing of the waves when he looks at the painting and then you have that same sound when he's approaching the puddle yeah and then you have frank who is just evil outlaw but who wants to kind of enter this business this realm of business and you have morton kind of trying to teach him how to use money use money to to also morton's got uh, tuberculosis by the way i looked it up i knew he had something i knew it was what did you you thought he just had like a shot in the spine yeah yeah no (laughs) it was like something it was uh, osteoporosis tuberculosis it was some osis yeah one of the osmosis jones (laughs) yeah He's got Chris Rock inside him. That would make anyone have to use crutches. But uh, And then you have Jill, you know, this strong female character. Probably one of the strongest we've seen doing this podcast, to be honest, really. Yes, and that's that's where, like, the for the most part, that's a, a reflection on just kind of the movies we've picked. It's like, I mean, we pick them at random, but, like, okay, horror movies, yeah, they, they, they give you a strong female character, but the, the strong female character is usually just survivor. You know, there's... Yeah. Good movies can do a lot more with that, but for the most part, it's just like, okay, you know, but like this character, there's a lot going on with this character. If I were to say this is a better movie than The Good, The Mad, and The Ugly, or that I enjoy it more, I think I would probably center it mostly on the dynamics that come from having a character like her. Because we do not have the equivalent of that character in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And I don't just mean like from a female character, but just the character itself, because I think the main three gunfighters, outlaw types are all comparable to the main three in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. You just have this fourth character thrown in there that that really, it kind of brings out both the best and worst in other characters, which is just kind of interesting. Yeah, she's wonderful. But yeah, and as you said, you know, if you haven't seen this movie, you need to watch it. It's fantastic. It's 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 a bit of a slow watch, but it's a very rewarding one. It's a very entertaining movie. Incredible soundtrack, incredible cinematography, great performances. Yeah, it's 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 the whole package. Well, speaking, I guess, of all of that, the antithesis to all of that is our next movie, a Resident I'll, Evil. I'll, I'll focus it specifically. <laughs> the antithesis I want to say is the score, and I'm not just saying this because yeah, Ennio Morricone, incredible score. But Resident Evil is a score by. Did you did you catch who this was? Yes. I, I, yeah. I, yeah. It was Marco Beltrami and Marilyn Manson. Yeah. And I'll single out. <laughs> first of all, Marco Beltrami is a quality composer. He's he did like the Scream movies. He did at least the first couple Scream movies. I think they had him for the newest one. But I could be wrong. But yeah, he's he did a a Quiet Place. I thought was a great score. So he's done yep. like good horror movie scores too. I think Marilyn Manson got in and was like. Marilyn Manson as a musician, I've never listened. You know, I, I don't have any preconceived notions. I understand, like, Marilyn Manson has, is actually very critically acclaimed in certain areas. It's like, I may have, like, uh, like oh, I don't want to listen to that. But I'm not saying it's garbage or anything. But, like, yeah. Marilyn Manson, obviously, influential figure in pop culture. But I'm just thinking of, like, the the 
popular musician, the rock musician or whatever, that does a film score? How many of them can you name? Like, because I'm, I'm, I can think well, of a few. Uh, There's, um, I was gonna say a whole score or or something like like the James Bond theme. Oh yeah, no, the score because yeah, you can just have anyone do a song. Like, um, fucking Dave Thomas's brother did a song for Strange Brew. <laughs> I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about like, um. Brian May of Queen did did uh, did uh, one of the Mad Max scores. Oh, did he really? Yeah, maybe maybe the first one. Uh, Jimmy Page has done scores. Uh, yeah, I think he did some of the Death Wish scores or something like that. And then also my personal favorite, Eric Clapton has a credit on the Lethal Weapon scores. And the the reason why that's my favorite little fact to drop here is that because. By Eric Clapton's involvement, he assures that Mel Gibson is not the single worst human being to work on the Lethal Weapon <laughs> films. So, just thought I'd throw that out there. Oh, no. Yeah, I can't. <laughs> He's, Eric Clapton's a monster. He is just a terrible human being. I didn't even know about all that until like recently, and I've like looked at some of the things he said, and I'm like, oh my god, yeah. this guy's awful. Yeah, and he, <laughs> like, yeah it's, it's, like he's, it's almost like he's living in his own world of... Of craziness. You know, in the, the Wall by Pink Floyd, there's that song where Pink, who's the main character of this rock opera, who, like, becomes... He's, like, doing a concert, and then he basically turns the concert into a Nazi rally. <laughs> and that's, like... Uh, <laughs> that's, that's, like, like it's, it's a It's a dramatic moment in the song. It's like Eric Clapton basically did that in real life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, insane. Yeah, going back to the score for this... I read uh, awful. Uh, yeah, and, and awful I, I read a quick little interview. Marilyn Manson said that it was there was a, a lot more like electric music, like like electro music, than he was yeah. used to. But I, I'm also okay. just wondering why they got Marilyn Manson involved at all, and is it just because it was like a it's like a zombie movie, a bloody gory zombie movie, and he was popular in the early 2000s? Yeah, I'm sure that I'm sure it's just that, and I don't think there needs to be a whole lot of thought put into it i mean there probably should have been more thought put into it yeah. but there wasn't and that's fine and i mean i there was a specific moment i i didn't take notes while watching this movie because i usually don't for the movies that you take lead on because i'm lazy but <laughs> there was a specific moment i think it was somewhere in the first half where i made like a mental note in my head and i'm like this is the worst movie music i have ever heard and i'm trying to remember what scene it was i think it was when they first got on the train Oh uh, but yeah! It was just like this is just an awful piece of music. It's so bad, and so like it doesn't fit the mood or anything. Like I get like you get that rock music kind of score for your action scenes, and it's like it's not my thing. But it you know it it serves a purpose. But whatever scene I'm thinking of was just like oh my god, like, this doesn't even suit the mood or the tone or any. This is just yeah, weird. I, I tuned out the score for this movie. Like I just wasn't even paying attention. I think I heard the first song or whatever, like, I, and I was just like I'm, I'm checking out mentally of the score i'm not even going to pay attention to it but if you say it was terrible then i agree and i think anything with marilyn manson involved is probably terrible talking about awful people doing musical scores like eric clapton you know marilyn manson's got marilyn manson's got his scalps uh shall we say (laughs) well speaking well okay yeah (laughs) he does but uh other people involved in this movie uh you brought up michelle rodriguez Mila, uh, you, you hear like a lot of Kunis. people pronounce her. Yeah. <laughs> jo- no, Jovovich. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Wait, wait, you hear wait. a lot of people pronounce her name differently. Jovovich, Jovovich. Oh, I'm going to say Jovovich. But uh, those are probably the two biggest names. Yeah, inexplicably, Jason Isaacs is the narrator, according to Wikipedia. Yeah, but apparently like, he's... That's a way too big of a name for just like a 
bit thing. Maybe he's a character in the sequels. I don't know. Uh, you know, I have no clue. So I've seen maybe one other Resident Evil movie. I'm, I I don't even know if I have, to be honest. And the only game I've played was the most recent one that came out. Christ, it was one that came out a few years ago. Okay. Uh, Whatever, it doesn't here. matter. Yeah, it does matter. No, uh, don't Biohazard. look it up. We Biohazard. don't care. No one That's cares the, then. Resident like... Evil Biohazard. Um, Biohazard? This, Biohazard's already a game, isn't it? Or am I, no, Bioshock? I'm thinking of Bioshock. Yeah. <laughs> Listen here, Mr. Video Game Expert. <laughs> but yeah, so those two ladies are probably the biggest names in this movie. It was also written and directed by Paul W.S. Anderson. Right. Now, here's the weird thing about this. So, a German film production company, Constantine film yeah i noticed this is like german british it's not considered an american yeah, film it's filmed in berlin or at least part okay. of it is filmed in berlin which by the way i want to say the underworld films might have been the same thing uh, yeah, maybe I they bet. took place in I'd germany be willing i'm not to sure bet. but uh yeah so they bought the rights for a resident evil film in 97 and then they hired okay. uh screenwriter alan b McElroy, who did halloween 4 yeah i was gonna say i, I knew that name halloween 4 okay yeah he wrote a script. Apparently, it was re- well received by some, but they ultimately chose not to pick it up for whatever reason. They just chucked it. And his movie okay. was going to be it was going to be about special forces that were sent into a government facility and they were all killed and zombies and stuff. So pretty much what this is, but a little yeah, different. Yeah, that's essentially what happens here. And then in 98, get this, in 98, George A. Romero directed a television oh. commercial for uh oh, resident no. evil 2 that only aired in japan interesting okay yeah and, Sh- and i'm gonna butcher this name but shinji mikami he who's a big fan of romero who created the game and who was obviously influenced by his films is what he said he wanted romero to write a screenplay for the first resident evil movie so <laughs> this is great romero asked his secretary to play the entire game and record the gameplay so that he could study it as a resource. <laughs> okay. And uh, he came so he's up thinking, with thinking, I'm not touching this shit. Yeah, yeah, he's like, I'm it. not doing that. So, well, yeah, I mean, he's, he's 75 years old. What's he going to do with a video game? Well, exactly. Know? I just look Although at John it. Carpenter plays video games avidly, as I understand it. And yeah, John Carpenter is probably now the age that Romero would have been around then. Romero wrote a script, and it was also ultimately rejected. And then they called on somebody else. Somebody else not important. But then they got Paul W.S. Anderson in because he directed... Who's also not important. No, exactly. (laughs) But only because he directed the Mortal Kombat movie, which was like the first commercially successful video game adaptation. It's a shitty movie, from what I understand, because again, I haven't seen it. But uh, apparently it was commercially successful in the sense that I I assume a bunch of people went out to the theaters to see it because they're like, oh my god, a video game movie? This is awesome. So they brought him in. And he apparently said that he wasn't going to include any tie-ins with the video game series because, and I quote, underperforming uh, movie tie-ins are too common and Resident Evil of all games deserved a good celluloid representation. So I don't know what that means considering... Well, today I I learned that Paul W.S. Anderson is at least knows words that are three syllables which i would not necessarily <laughs> guess from watching his films because I, yeah. this is the esteemed director of alien versus predator yeah <laughs> the, the those death race movies i think right didn't he do i like, think so and, yeah uh, and then i think he did like the entirety of the resident evil series resident evil is just rebooted i think he probably has nothing to do with that but i think he did all the ones with mila 
Because he married Mila Jovovich. I don't know when did, they got yeah. married, but they, yeah. And I don't know if they still are married, but they did get married at one point. Yeah, so, and I think, is this only the second video game movie that we've done? Yep. Yeah, so, so far we don't have a really good track record, and this is keeping that record alive for sure. To get into the movie, we get this kind of interesting explanation of the Umbrella Corporation, which is the largest corporation in the U.S. It appears to be an above-board operation. Yeah, it's, ba- it's basically Amazon, but evil, so Amazon. Also, I just want to stop you. I know we yeah. haven't gotten anywhere with the movie, but no one ever acknowledges this or anything, but why is it called Raccoon City? That I is no such a I dumb have... name. Like, Absolutely there has to no be a clue. story or something. Like, the fact that they worked that into the title of the new Resident Evil movie, it's just like, it sounds so dumb saying it out loud, Raccoon City. It does. What? I just think of mountains of trash with raccoons crawling all over them when I hear raccoons. Yeah, well, aren't raccoons nocturnal? Are they doing, like, a thing like, oh, it's a city the night. Oh, it's Night City. You know, know, I don't know. Yeah, so that's where the Umbrella Corporation is, underground, (laughs) underneath Raccoon City. They've got this thing that they call the Hive with like 5,000 employees, and down there, they're developing like military weapons, and they have genetic genetic experiments, and uh, uh, they're producing viral weaponry. Yeah, and the public doesn't know they're doing that, but they are doing that, right? The public just thinks they're like a medical corporation. So, right after we get this explanation, we get this kind of weird zoom in of somebody removing these strange-looking vials, which we can assume are bioweapons of some kind. And then we're, we're shown one breaking off the corner of a desk in an office. This was the, the introduction. So I, I had seen this movie before, but I think this was one of those movies. It was on Prime. I was in the UK at the time. So this was about two years ago. Mm-hmm. It was on Prime UK, and I probably threw it on while I was doing something else because I don't remember a damn thing about it. And I think <laughs> I'm just like... But anyways, this is the introduction to... Oh my God, I had forgotten how awful CGI was yes. in the early 2000s. <laughs> because the, the the fact that we have this like uh, vial being thrown and it's CG, there's not too many moments, but the moments that are there are just atrocious with the CG where it's just like, oh my God, we were just not ready in 2002. And it's amazing to think that this is 10 years after Jurassic Park. It's like, we were ready for that, but we yeah. weren't ready for this. Or I don't, even, I don't or even know. it was coming out the same time during Lord of the Rings. You know, yeah. Lord of the Rings was released two thousand one. Yeah, two Weta Digital could have could have done something with this, maybe. But yeah, it's just oh my god. Yeah, it's it's rough. But speaking of rough, this virus gets released into the air vents of the facility, and the facility just starts locking itself down and locking a bunch of people in rooms and elevators and stuff. And then we get, we get to watch for like ten minutes as <laughs> as people are killed. Yeah, this all over scene the building. went on for longer than it needed to. And this is just your preamble, I guess. Since the entire movie follows what happens here, maybe it didn't. Maybe it kind of justifies the link. You'd think like this is just like your virus is being released, but then it's like no, no, no. When you watch the movie, the entire movie is about how the virus is in this building. Like, okay, that makes sense. So you'd think it's just like virus and then boom zombies everywhere but no no no, zombies everywhere but only here you know zombies everywhere in the hive (laughs) yeah so it's like okay but but the scene did seem like it went on for too long yeah and it's also kind of weird because you get these almost saw like vibes when you have a room that's been sealed shut and it's filling up with water because the fire extinguisher system won't shut off Okay. Or, you know, there's a bunch of people trapped in an elevator, and they hear an elevator next to them crash like 10 stories. 
and kill everybody mm-hmm. inside. And then a woman gets her head taken off <laughs> by an elevator. Or I guess Which, by Which, yeah, they, they, they cheaped us out there. They could have shown did. us that. Well, and it's interesting they didn't show us that, but they'll show us, like, gross, bloody zombie Dobermans. Yeah. There's, there's like, a cheapness to everything here where it's like, yeah, it's this huge facility— and yet we cut back to that that tiny little set right outside the elevators. We're, we're back there like four different times throughout the movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, there just felt like such a little bit of a cheapness there. But I also like I just brought that up to say that when she when she tries to squeeze her way out of the elevator, she sees that there's just dead people everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Later on, when our main characters approach the same cheap little set we've already seen, there's no dead bodies there. And what was that about? Well, is there ever an explanation for why things were cleaned up? Yeah, it's it's because the virus killed them, but then brought them back to life, right? As zombies. Okay, no, you're right, but I want to say there was like blood there. Maybe uh, I'm wrong. I, 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 yeah, I, I don't think so because they all just got knocked out by that by the gas or whatever, right? Yeah, well, someone cracked a head when they hit the ground. I mean, I'm sure there would have been a little blood stain somewhere. But okay, that's fair. I'll give I'll give you that one. You you got me, Paul W. S. Anderson. <laughs> I, I will not doubt you. You are a genius. You're right, again. sir. <laughs> so yeah, so after we see all these people die, we're introduced to Mila Jovovich. In this set, looks really dumb. Like it looks really cheap. Like it's trying too hard to look fancy. You know what I mean? Like I never played. The first oh, Resident the, the, Evil video game, but I feel yeah. like this is like lifted directly from the game almost. She's laying on the floor in like a marble shower in a marble bathroom. She's right. clearly lost her memory. She doesn't know who she is, where she is. She makes her way to the bathroom. She tests her handwriting on against somebody else's handwriting. Doesn't match up. She's going just through like random drawers and she finds a drawer full of guns that's locked. She also puts on clothes at one point. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's good. Yeah, but it's like yeah, this she was, yeah. little red dress, which which is kind of a cool thing. It's like um, it's you know I I don't know women's fashion well, but it's like <laughs> it's like higher on one leg than it is on the other, so it's got this like diagonal thing at the bottom. Like yeah, it, it looks cool kind of look. hip, you know. It looks trendy. Sure. <laughs> Did that sure. sound what the kids say these days? Hip. Uh, by the way, I guarantee yeah. that when this movie came out, there was some positive review somewhere that got put on the DVD that said something about this movie being hip. Because that was like a big <laughs> word for like like turn of the century horror movies. I think maybe starting with Scream, we got like hip and like cool. Hip and like thrown on. Like it, it, whenever someone would say something was hip, it always made it on posters and DVD covers and stuff. So some someone out there described this movie as hip, I guarantee This it. is the hippest movie you'll see all year. Until Shakira's Hips Don't Lie music video comes out. <laughs> you idiot. Uh, she makes her way outside and then is immediately tackled back inside by a cop named Matt. And as you're getting a quick explanation of who he is, you have all these like people repel through the giant glass windows in this mansion that she's in. Yeah, this is a very 2319. We have a 2319 type moment. Yes. In Monsters, yeah. Inc., where they just saw this <laughs> swinging in from everywhere. <laughs> Yeah, and then they're all wearing these gas masks, and then they immediately take them off because it's too hard to understand any of the characters. But the guy who's leading this group of soldiers, of people, uh, he grabs Alice, who's Mila Jovovich, and he's asking her to report on what happened. She's like, oh, I don't know, I don't know. And he's like, oh, you've lost your memory, damn it. So they're immediately ushered in through this tunnel and taken to a train where they meet another person who's lost their memory. And they hop on this train, which turns out to be an emergency entrance 
to the hive, and they zoom along down this Soviet-era-looking <laughs> looking train to the hive. Yeah, why was it, like, grungier? You'd think it'd be, like, high-tech. Yeah, like, I also don't understand. Looking. Like, I was, I was looking up the references to the video game, and there's not many. And the, the train that's supposed to be in the video game, which is from the second video game, is called the Galaxy 5000. But in this movie, it's called the Alexi 5000, and that has something to do with, with like, a character. And I'm like, who gives a shit? Like, <laughs> who cares? Anyways... Oh, and then like well, the crows. Well, you cared enough to look it up. I well, yeah. Say well, somebody cares. Well, then somebody was like, I didn't. Oh. I didn't look up jack shit about this movie. Well, I know That's you did. Because you're care. lazy. <laughs> well, no, no, it's not because I'm lazy. I mean, it's because if I were, if this movie got me interested in the video games, maybe I would have actually like looked by it a little bit. Like this movie just didn't do it for me. I don't think it's the worst thing ever. This is just that type of movie, you know. It's like there's certain genres that just don't jive with me and i think like action horror i would say is is one of the top ones where it's just like just doesn't work and then i feel like they always have the the like rock music score for like action scenes and it's just like and the thing that this movie suffers from is the fact that it's a video game movie i'm not saying that video game movies can't be done well i don't think i've seen a good adaptation but so like whereas with once upon a time in the west everything was so slow moving but it was all eventually leading somewhere and it was enjoyable you have things happening so quickly in this movie so quickly that you can barely understand what's happening yeah early on i i think once once they get to the hive i don't think that was too much of an issue but i think at this point you know i'm not going to maybe Mila Jovovich is a great actor or whatever i'm i'm not i i, I don't know but this movie didn't really give her much of an opportunity to act because it's like okay in movies like think of like the born identity or something like any movie you've seen like where characters like lost their memory they can convey that in their performance Mm -hmm. and then they realize they stumble upon a skill of something they didn't know they had which we see later but like we're talking an hour 15 minutes into the movie we see that and then it's like early on when, when she encounters this other guy on the train she has like a tiny look of like oh maybe i know who he is but then, like, immediately we, we cut away from acting to show, like, little f- flashbacks and stuff. I'm like, no, 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 just let her act. Yeah. Just let her act. We can we can see what's going on from the performance, but the movie didn't, like, trust her. I agree with you. And going back to my point about it being a video game movie, it's almost like they're trying too hard to balance the video game stuff with, like, the movie stuff. Like, you're trying to impress the video game crowd, but you're also trying to make it palatable for the average moviegoer. And usually when you smash those two things together, none of it just meshes really well. Well, I I guess, but I I, I don't understand, especially with little to no knowledge of the video games in this case, like, why those two things can't be the same thing. I understand generally, you know, broadly speaking, what is enjoyable in a game isn't necessarily the same as what's enjoyable in a movie, but, like... When you're saying, like, when you're mixing the video game stuff and you're mixing the movie stuff, like, what what are you talking about specifically, I guess, is my question. Well, the, the, the problem with video games, as opposed to movies, is that video games, you're fed the story over, like, a 10-hour game. There's okay. usually lots of reading or, or, like, explanations involved from other characters, stuff like cut that. Cutscenes, stuff yeah, like cut that. Yeah, cutscenes, exactly. Or, you know, you stumble upon, like, in Halo, let's say, you find terminals. And it will explain what happened on this on this halo or on a planet or whatever, okay? Uh, it gives you, like, a backstory to what's happening. Sure. This movie, because they don't have time to give you all of the explanations, 
they just throw you into it and it just seems jarring because you don't know anything about what's happening or about really anything at all and you're just thrown into this movie from the get-go and it's you're going 100 miles an hour right off the bat and then you slow down whereas with a video game there's a more consistent pace yeah, it's more it's more of a consistent pace but you're also fed the information throughout it right whereas they're trying really hard in a movie to cram all the information that you need to understand what's going on in like the first 20 odd minutes but it's the information from like a 10 hour game i know i'm not explaining it well but hopefully somebody out there will <laughs> understand what i'm saying back to the movie this team of people that have taken alice to the hive they've been sent there to figure out what's happened to the hive the red queen is the name of the ai in charge of the hive just started killing everybody and that's all that they know you're right the red queen kills seven times and uh that's, yeah, that's the title of a jalo film that's on our list it's a pretty good one so uh these people get into the hive they head past this flooded lab that we saw was getting flooded earlier and we get a spooky yeah. jump scare where we see that this woman's body that's floating in there she's still alive then they move into yeah. a room called dining room b which is i, I kind of like the reveal because you see it on the map, which is also like this really kind of... That felt very video gamey to that they cut a couple times. It was only like two or three times that they cut to this like map where yeah. they have like um, the red, uh, you know, the red glow of them. Because I guess, you know, heat with thermal image or whatever. But then it says dining room B and then they step in there and it's very clearly not a dining room. It's storage of some sort. Yeah, well, Alice walks up to one of these giant steel containers and she peers inside. And you can clearly see that there's like a creature in there that has like feeding tubes. Right after that, they try to head into the Red Queen's chamber, which is where the where the um, AI is kept. And I, <laughs> I really like this because there's like a hallway that leads into this room. And they're trying to take like a like an EMP sort of thing into this room and... Like, half of the characters get trapped in this hallway immediately. The Red Queen overrides whatever they were doing and locks the doors. And then a laser comes down the hallway and, like, cuts off this guy's hand <laughs> and uh, and this woman's head. It's really gross, but it's really cool. <laughs> and then this laser comes back down the hallway, and this guy goes to jump over it, but the laser just moves up the wall and cuts him in half. And then as it looks like the leader of their team is going to be able to dodge this laser, it just, like, turns into four lasers and then just turns into, like, a grid of lasers and cuts them into little cubes. <laughs> Which you, you think they would have started, they would have let off with the grid just I to know, make sure yeah. that there's, <laughs> yeah, it's very, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, this scene was, is entertaining. It was dumb. It was, and yeah, obscene. and that's, <laughs> I, uh, even when the woman's like head gets sliced off, I've seen that thing so often, that cliche of like, oh, they've been, they're dead, but they don't realize it. Like where the head is severed, and you just like have to wait for it to fall off because they like look around for a moment. Yeah, like, and they're like, oh, I, is everybody I okay? Fucking, <laughs> I I hate that cliche. Whatever it is, whatever the delayed decapitation, I'll call it. You know, there's something along those lines. I've seen it in so many things. I'm just done with it. I never want to <laughs> see it again. So, Alice and Kaplan, I think that's his name. They, they shut the computer off again, sort of, and they get through the hallway into the main chamber, and they go to shut the Red Queen down, and it's, speaking of little girls, it's a hologram of a little girl, and uh, she's eating with them. When did we talk about little girls? Oh, I was just saying on Ghost Ship, there's a little girl there, and oh, she doesn't okay. get cut. Oh, okay. I was just like, okay. And that's, okay. Damn it, Patrick. Well, I'm, I'm just anticipating cutting that part already, so I oh, just want to... Okay, never mind then. <laughs> cut it. Cut all of it. I'll keep you just randomly saying, speaking of little girls <laughs> without context. It's like, what? That's, that'd be hilarious. 
<laughs> That'd be hilarious. Yes, do that. So there's this hologram, and uh, she's pleading with them to not shut her off. And Kaplan's like, don't listen to her. We've got to turn her off. And then she turns, and she says, you're all going to die down here. And then they shut her off. And as soon as they shut the uh, the AI off, all of like the doors and stuff become unlocked. So now all these zombie people can roam free. But you don't know that they're zombies yet, really. I mean, we anyone watching the movie knows they're zombies. Like, yeah. <laughs> eyes open after someone has been drowning uh, yeah. for hours, it's a zombie. Like, it's yeah. someone who's alive despite being dead. Like, it's a zombie. We get it. Yeah. Also, I want to say... I was sort of a bit surprised, maybe just because, like, around when this movie came out and everything, like, I was expecting these to be fast zombies. They're not. These are these are traditional Romero zombies, really. Yeah, they yeah. just move around. And I think when I think Marilyn Manson's score, I think zombies running, don't you? I, yeah, I do, too. And because I think <laughs> of, like, this score is akin to the hidden music Easter eggs you can get in the Nazi zombie games. Okay. And it's kind of like rock. I was going to say it's akin to having my teeth pulled. Yeah. Okay, sure. <laughs> yeah. Just a, a Q-tip shoved a little too far down my ear and I'm suddenly I'm bleeding. That's what this music is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, you're definitely right about that. So back in the dining hall, well, those two characters are in the Red Queen chamber and they're making their way back to dining hall. Oh, yeah. They, I didn't even realize they had like split up for yeah, me a neither. long time. Yeah, me neither. I just... I'm like, where? Where's Michelle Rodriguez? I haven't seen her in a while. Oh, she's back with the with the cop. Who the cop is still handcuffed for some yeah. fucking reason. Yeah, they've like led him into this facility handcuffed. But yeah, well, speaking of Michelle Rodriguez, she gets bitten by a zombie, uh, like a zombie lady. But then she like blows her away with her machine gun. Like, <laughs> like the stunt guy on set got a little too overzealous and just yanked the wire, and the woman flew fifty feet after getting tapped with a bullet yeah it was great this is what i would call you know i said earlier like action and horror not my favorite thing this is what i call uh there's too many of them movie yes yeah because before i started watching it i'm like there will be uh there's too many of them line spoken in this movie <laughs> and i think they say it like twice it comes up at least once but um, I think the first time I was really aware of the there's too many of them, the laziest line of dialogue in the history of, of film that somehow makes it into every sci-fi action movie kind of thing. But first time I was aware of it was uh, the third Matrix movie, which I saw at least 10 years before I ever saw the first Matrix movie. I was over at a friend's house who was allowed to see R-rated movies when I wasn't. He liked <laughs> the Matrix movies. And I'm like, oh, do you want to watch the first Matrix? He's like, no, 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 I'm in the mood for the third one. And I'm like, but I haven't seen the first two. He's like, I don't care. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I had no idea what was going on the entire time. Like, I understand the third Matrix is not a great movie, maybe. But at some point, because I wasn't really enjoying it and I wasn't really following the story too much. But at one point towards the end, there was like, I don't know, there's like flying robot things or something, and then someone's like, there's too many of them. And I'm like, why do they say that in every movie? <laughs> and I'm just thinking, like going through my head, like, would they say that in everything? But yeah, this is this is a there's too many of them movie. Well, this movie also... Which I, have we done a there's too many? I guess maybe Aliens is a there's too many of them movie. I don't know if they say that line, but that's the type of movie that would have that line. Well, this movie also goes out of its way to explain to you that 5,000 people there's too work, many of them. work in the hive. Okay, so we know there's too many of them. Yeah, okay. so yeah, we know there's way too many of them. So I'm including the monsters that are inexplicably there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So all these other zombies start kind of filtering in, and they're having trouble unlocking this door. They eventually get this door open, 
and a guy gets ripped to bits by a bunch of zombies waiting behind the door. The cop gets his cuffs off, I think, right? Yeah, he unlocks them. Oh, yeah, them. because um, Michelle Rodriguez dropped the key when yeah. she was bit, and then he picked up the key, yeah. And in, meanwhile, he was like, that was kind of fun, where he was, like, struggling. It, it, was, it was insane that he was able to get the cuffs off with the key behind his back while he was also fighting off a zombie. And while he was also watch. on fire, his leg caught on fire. Yeah, that's right, he was on fire, <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, I wouldn't have the... It's pretty impressive. The, um, the talk about tunnel vision to, to be able to get those cuffs <laughs> off, you know? Yeah. So all the main characters get separated again. Matt's on his own, Alice is on her own, and then, like, all the team members are doing their own thing. Alice makes her way to this like animal holding area where all these zombie dobermans are and we get some yep like i think like there's a lot of bad things you can say about this movie i think the only and we've said them yeah (laughs) Yeah, i'm sure we're gonna say more really the only pro you have about this movie is that the zombie makeup looks pretty good yeah no complaints about the zombie makeup yeah and then no complaints the dog zombie makeup looks pretty good I love that the dogs were practical as often as they could be. I will also say, if we're talking positives, scene where she kicks the, zo- the zombie dog across the yes. room is one of the artists I've laughed in a long time. Yeah, she like runs up the, the <laughs> side of a wall. It's just about the bluntness of it just getting kicked and just going flying. Because it's like when she kicks it, it's, you can tell it's like a rubber thing. Yeah. It just goes flying. <laughs> that, was a, that was a good hearty laugh. Yeah, it was great. And this is also the scene that you kind of alluded to where she realizes she's like, oh, I can jump off walls and kick flying dogs yeah this is where she discovers she's a character from the matrix yeah <laughs> yeah exactly but uh yeah and then she's like oh i must have been something more important than somebody who lived in a slightly dilapidated mansion i mean again this is me not knowing anything about the games but is she like genetically enhanced or is she just like an ultra super special forces type person i don't know. like i don't, I don't understand remember. if this is supposed to be a supernatural power or like a scientifically you know like a captain america kind of thing or if this is just like or if it just she's hurt. just so she's just like ultra ultra jason Bourne, you know that kind of thing yeah i'll be honest i don't remember again the only resident evil i played was the one that came out in like 2016 or 17 or something but alice finds matt who I don't think this is really explained that well in the movie. He's like looking for information about his sister. Oh yeah, and I thought she was seven of nine. She really looked like seven <laughs> of nine, but she's not her. Yeah, she's now a zombie, and she goes to attack. She's the brunette chick in Love Actually who's got a thing for Alan Rickman. That's who she is. No, is she? Yeah. No. Yes. Really? Why would I lie? Why would I, I make this up? Well, because she looks attractive in this movie. In that movie, she looks kind of ugly. Well, she's got the bug eyes in both things. Oh. She's got, like, big eyes, which is kind of why I thought she was 709. But no, it's her. <laughs> trust me. <laughs> okay, I'll trust you. Well, yeah, well, now she's a zombie. She tries to kill her brother, and Alice shows up and cracks her over the over the head with, like, a, like a glass paperweight. And it turns out Matt's sister was, like, an environmental terrorist. In, like, a good sense, in, in the good way. She was trying to figure out or get proof of all the evil villainous stuff that the Umbrella Corporation was doing. So she smuggled herself into the Umbrella Corporation, into the hive, with the help of somebody. And that somebody turns out to be Alice, who we see through flashbacks of hers, when, like, she's slowly kind of regaining portions of her memory. 
Yeah, Alice doesn't tell Matt because she's like, oh my god, maybe I got her killed. Maybe I'm a bad person. I don't know. Yeah, not just like maybe I got her killed, but like maybe I got 5,000 people. Yeah. <laughs> That's what she's thinking. No, probably yeah. not her specifically. Yeah. And then it turns out that this is where we kind of learn a bit about this virus. It's called a T-virus. And Matt's sister was going to smuggle it out of the facility. And I think we also learned in this scene, it's like a zombie virus that reanimates the corpse, but with the need to feed. So they've got like yeah. no emotion, no brain function, really. They just wake up and need to feed on flesh. So Alice and all the others, they, they make their way back to the Red Queen chamber. And Alice decides to bring the little girl hologram back in hopes that they can escape somehow, that they can find a way out. They, like, turn on the Red Queen, but only, like, part of it or something? Yeah, they're, or, they're, like, like, trying to make a deal with the thing. They put, like, a failsafe in that she'll, like, shut off after a certain amount of time. Like, they removed, like, some microchip thing so she can't have access to the whole facility like she used to be able to. The Red Queen explains that she locked the facility down because the T-virus escaped and infected everybody. So to stop it from spreading to the surface, she locked it. <laughs> she locked the hive and killed everybody inside. And if you get scratched or bitten, then you're infected with the virus, which we already know that Michelle Rodriguez has been bitten. She might have been bitten right. twice by this point, to be honest. Everybody makes their way or starts making their way through these maintenance tunnels, but they get ambushed by a bunch of zombies. Michelle Rodriguez is definitely bitten again because she's bitten like 10 times in this movie. They have to leave their buddy Kaplan behind, who you think is going to shoot himself, but he doesn't. Oh, yeah, this was very clearly like, oh, he's going to come back because he's got one shot left. Yeah. And as everyone's leaving, like, okay, you, you, they, they're they leaving, like, okay, he'll probably shoot himself so he doesn't become a zombie. But then he ends up using his last shot on a zombie, and he says, like, you guys will have to earn it or something. Yeah. And then it's <laughs> yeah. like, okay, he's coming back. Like I said earlier, Alice keeps having all these flashbacks. Eventually, they kind of make their way back to this lab that was, like, that was flooded, and this is when she remembers that there's an antidote for the T-virus. So she makes her way into the lab where the antidote should be, but it's missing. And it turns out this guy, Spence, the guy that they found on the train, he's a bad guy and he stole the antidote and hid it on the train. But he's also the guy that released the T-virus, which he conveniently remembers all of this as they're looking at the spot where the antidote should be. Is there ever like a, oh, you lost your memory because of, cause they show like the little flashback of her like collapsing in the shower and I'm trying to think what was, was there an, ex I, yeah, so it, was, movie, it was, it was a few days ago. I can't remember it. What, what was that about? Part of the T virus, it like knocked them out or something or like somebody released oh. like a, like a noxious gas into the, into the place. Into the house? Well, yeah, because there's a vent in the shower. The, the black guy who's like the head of the team explains that she was knocked out by some kind of like nerve gas. Oh, okay. And okay. that also happened to Spence somehow when he was next he was to the train. On a train. What's he doing on the train? I don't know. He's just, yeah. Well, I guess he's probably coming back. Yeah, right? yeah, he, he was coming he back probably, from stealing. Because he's the one who spills the guy's coffee because he's yes. leaving in a hurry because he knows what's going to go down. So, yeah. So, uh, this guy Spence then locks Matt and Alice and Michelle Rodriguez in the lab and he heads for the train, but he's killed by this big monster called a licker. I don't know if they call them that in the movies, but that's what they are in the video no, games. No, that definitely did not come up in the movie, but yeah, no, yeah. this is this is where you really see the, you know, CGI it was just not where it is today. Well, it's you know, bad. It's just It's yeah. really bad. It's bad. It, it is. I mean, it's it's I just, like, I couldn't believe. I'm like, oh, this is where CGI was here at this point. And you're right. Same year as Lord of the Rings. I don't know. It just it just doesn't look good. It, it almost makes you wonder how actors acted with, like, 
with like, Paul Paul's W. Samson as the director. Like, how could they? No, but yeah. it's like, like, how do you want me to act? Wow, well, a big ugly creature with a long tongue is going to come down and eat you. You know, as an actor, you're, you're either okay, you see it and you run, or you just flop on the ground like you're getting your throat ripped. I mean, I feel like I understand it's hard to act in front of like CGI things because nothing's there and you have to kind of anticipate what will be there and you don't know. And then they can always change something in post where it's not what you were told to react. Yeah, who knows? I don't really feel like that's the case here. It just looks bad. So like they get out of the lab with the help of Kaplan, who, like you said, comes back. And there's just like a big pool of blood around Spence and there's like bloody footprints on like a pillar leading up to the ceiling, which is kind of neat. The physical real world effects in this movie, they're not that bad, but it's all like the zombie makeup. you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Or like regardless of the CG monster, let's talk about why is there a monster? I understand why there's a monster in like because these are like I'm assuming like the boss kind of things in in the video game where most of the game you're shooting zombies and every now and then you, you have to fight against like a big evil creature thing why is there a genetically engineered monster here was this thing human at some point was it it an animal it was so you know those those steel boxes that's what's in those steel boxes no i I know i understand that but like they injected the t-virus directly into living tissue is what they said and that's how those things were created but everyone else, all the other regular zombies have, I guess they just, it wasn't directly injected yeah, it was, into them? Yeah, it was like in, ingested through their lungs. Okay. But like there were a couple neat looking zombies, like one was missing kind of like half of its face. There was some zombie, it's like, ooh, that that was also another like, ooh, CGI, no, because I think it was, they were like missing part of their face because they had to like CGI it out and it like didn't track perfectly when the person moved their head, so it just like looked wrong to me. It's just... <laughs> I mean, it's just like, yeah, you know, they can do this on The Walking Dead now, I'm sure. But like, yeah, 2002, different era. So everybody makes it to the train. Alice injects Rain with the antidote because they take it from... Call her Michelle Rodriguez. That's what we've been calling her. Oh, that's her. You're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Michelle Rodriguez. That's the first time I've heard Rain? What? They're all like leaving the hive, but the liquor is back and he was on top of the train and he pulls Kaplan out and kills him. And then it like attacks Matt... Alice subdues the liquor before it can make its way back to Matt, who then kills Michelle Rodriguez because she turned into a zombie. The antivirus didn't work because they got it to her too late. I don't know why. Her head hits a button opening this door and it drops the liquor under the train, killing it. So they get back to the mansion. Alice is trying to kind of tend to Matt because his wounds begin mutating. He's going to turn into a zombie. And just before Alice can give him the antidote, all of these umbrella scientists, I guess, in hazmat suits, they all bust in through the doors and they take Alice away and Matt away. Then they say something about the Nemesis program, which... Yeah, they're putting him in the Nemesis program. Yeah, that has nothing to do with us. We don't care. That actually, I know, that's the one thing I know about Resident Evil, is that there's something called the Nemesis, and the only reason I know that is because it's an unlockable DLC in the video game Dead by Daylight, so... Oh, really? (laughs) never played as the Nemesis, but I have played against him, and I haven't played that game in a long time, and I probably kind of stopped playing that game around that round time that character was introduced not because of that just you know <laughs> haven't like, been around Resident Evil. i know pinhead's been added to the game since then you know there's probably a lot of other new stuff too so but yeah so they take them both away separate them and then sometime later alice wakes up at the raccoon city hospital and she's like strapped to an examination table full of like tubes and needles and stuff she gets up pulls them all off walks outside 
and she finds Raccoon City deserted and in ruins, and we see like a newspaper snippet that says the dead walk. She walks over to an abandoned police car and finds a shotgun and starts walking down the street, and that's the end of the movie. Patrick, how'd you like the movie, buddy? Well, I didn't care much for it. I mean, just overall, it's not my thing, this type of movie, this genre, this action horror kind of thing. Not to say that I don't, I mean, like, I like Overlord. You know, there's a few movies that I'd probably throw in that action horror genre that I do like, but for the most part, if you're talking about, like, a movies or a genre that has kind of a low ceiling for me, it would be this. I would have a hard time believing anyone thought the climax was exciting. I think it was rather underwhelming. I just didn't like it that much. It took us a long time to get to Alice being like cool, doing cool matrixy stuff. And then she really only did it for like one scene and it didn't matter. And then it's like, okay, why did we build up to that? Yeah. I, if I had to guess, I would guess the sequels, she's she's cool matrix woman from the beginning. And those are probably more entertaining for me, just like from a schlock perspective. Like yeah. we, we're not, we've dropped all the mystery and we're just going full stupid action. Like I would probably enjoy those movies a bit more, but I don't know. There's a lot of bad things that come together. The score for sure. The director for sure. <laughs> the director, the script. Yeah. Yeah. The script. I think all the acting in this movie is pretty substandard. It's like passable. It, it, there's no one who, who's great. No one who's terrible. I, I, I kind of like Michelle Rodriguez as like a presence, as like a female action heroine. I don't really have much of a reason to, but I just I just always kind of liked her in those kind of, like, that's the great irony of the Fast and the Furious movies. It's like the supporting actors are always so much more engaging, so much more charismatic than Vin Diesel and Paul Walker <laughs> and you know, Paul Walker, rest in peace. But Vin Diesel is like the least charismatic action hero in the history of the world. Yeah. And then it's like, yeah, but The Rock is the supporting actor in some of those movies, and he's awesome. And, I mean, Ludacris is enjoyable in those <laughs> movies, and Michelle Rodriguez is awesome. It's just like Vin Diesel just sucks, though. It's like, but yeah, no, Michelle Rodriguez, she doesn't get to do a whole lot, but I, I enjoyed her. Here, I enjoyed her. Yeah, she just gets bitten a lot and then gives people dirty looks and tells Matt to suck my dick. Oh, yeah, that was like her first line. That was the first line in which we knew it was, it was like right yeah. after she took off her gas mask. That's <laughs> yeah. right, it was... It's like, you're going to break my arm. I'm a cop. She's like, suck my dick. This isn't your grandfather's video game movie. This isn't (laughs) Pong. We can swear. We've got Marilyn Manson and Michelle Rodriguez telling people to suck her dick. (laughs) And we got rid of a George A. Romero script for some reason. Yeah, I was going to say, move aside, George A. Romero. This isn't your grandpa zombie movie. (laughs) Yeah, it's, uh, it's just a bad, bad movie. Yeah, on that note, Patrick... Which movie did you like better? <laughs> well, you know, I, it took me a long time. Uh, you know, there's <laughs> Silent Hill or what, what was it? What was this movie called? Resident Evil. Re- Resident Evil. Yeah, no, it's not Resident Evil. I, I, it's not a good movie. You're right. Not the worst we've seen. Once Upon a Time in the West is very likely the best movie we've seen it's it's probably my favorite of the ones we've done yeah including psycho and godzilla and all the other good stuff we've done dr alien everything i just i really love the movie you know it's it's twice the length of resident evil and yet i feel so much more engaged by at every step of the way even watching Once Upon a Time in the West, just thinking like, by the time Jill learns that her husband is dead, it's like 50 minutes into the movie. Yeah. So it's like the movie's like just starting. Yeah. And yet it's like I'm completely engaged. And we're still 
yet to really discover the plot of the movie. And, you know, yeah, well, you have- as an evil, 50, 50 minutes into the movie, we're like two-thirds of the way done. This is a really short movie. I just didn't like it that much. Jim, what about you? Screw Resident Evil, all about Once Upon a Time in the West. But as I said in the beginning, Once Upon a Time in the West is everything that Resident Evil isn't. First off, it's good. Visually appealing. Visually appealing. Well acted. Well acted. Well great written. score. Yeah, well written. Uh, Which we didn't we didn't point out. I I, I I meant to point this out earlier, but Once Upon a Time in the West, a true um a true like who's who of Italian filmmakers because Dario Argento and Bernardo Bertolucci are credited with the story for Once Upon a Time in the West. So this is before, I don't know where Bertolucci's career was at this point, but Argento, this is, I think, before he had ever directed a film. But like oh, wow. this might have been his like first real credit. And like, oh, that's awesome. We've we've done a couple, or rather I have, because these are both guest episodes, but we've, I've d- done a couple Dario Argento films in this podcast. So this is our third one, I guess, technically. Resident Evil is just bad. And Once Upon a Time in the West is just fantastic in, in like, every way. This is the most slam dunk, uh, easy pick we've had <laughs> since Psycho and Spookies. Or since whatever we paired with Screwballs. Psycho and Spookies. Well, you, you let, you've watched... Yeah, I, I, I'm not even letting you join in my teasing of Spookies, because you've told me you've watched I love Spookies. Since, so you clearly... Yeah, spookies, oh God, Deathstalker... Okay. But anyways, how do you think this works as a double feature? You have a long, slow, plodding, western, shoot 'em up beautiful cinematography, acting, all that stuff. And then you follow it up with like this schlocky, zombie, horror shoot 'em up that's way worse in every single way imaginable. And to me, that that's kind of funny. That's the thing. You say schlocky. It's not... It, I think it could have been... It could have been worse. I would have enjoyed it if it was more schlock. It was. It took itself too seriously. But yeah, originally I thought they would have worked well together because I kind of like that sharp contrast. Well, there's like <laughs> the complete opposites of each other, but I don't think you can ruin a double feature with Resident Evil. You mean you don't think it's possible, or no, you no, don't no, want no, no, to no, 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 as in like I okay. don't want to ruin. Just wanted uh, to make yes, yeah. make sure, yeah. I don't want to ruin Once Upon a Time in the West with Resident Evil coming up after it. I'm gonna go a bit more simple, and you know, because yeah, I Once Upon a Time in the West is too good to be paired with Resident Evil. That's true, but I'll even. Go one step further, and I'll make it Once Upon a Time in the West's fault. And I'm going to say, two-hour, 45-minute-long movie, mm-hmm. not good as part of a double feature in any, no matter what it's with. And this is, granted, this is a movie on the shorter side, for sure, in Resident Evil, but this is the longest movie we've done, Once Upon a Time in the West. The only thing that even comes close was Aliens, but specifically we watched the director's cut of that, whereas yeah. if had we watched the theatrical, that's probably 20 minutes less. So yeah, this is far and away the longest movie. Just, I mean, as entertaining as it is, it does ask a lot out of you, a lot of your patience and, and um, refraining of going to the bathroom and all that stuff. So it's like, yeah, not a great, <laughs> not really great to pair with anything, to be perfectly honest. We're in agreement here. And hey, Jim, do you want to know what we're doing next week? Absolutely. Well, here's the thing you already know, because this is... <laughs> This is our second last episode of the season, but this is the one where you and I wanted to go out on a high note, and we picked our own movies here. So, Jim, you picked Big Trouble in Little China. I did, I did. The John Carpenter film starring Kurt Russell. I chose a movie that I haven't seen, The Street Fighter from 1974. Not to be confused with the video. It's not a video game movie. Okay, we just did one. It's not that. (laughs) This is starring Sonny Chiba 
it is a, uh, as I understand it anyways, because I haven't seen it, as I understand it, this movie is A, amazing, that's what I've heard anyways, and B, like an, it's like an ultra-violent like martial arts movie and it's like okay that, that'll be fun we haven't we haven't done something like that yet so yeah and then we also have kind of two martial artsy movies yeah a little asian flavor <laughs> a little pan-asian cuisine here yeah i know the street fighter at least as of when we're talking about this is available on tubi all right so be sure to join us next week go ahead and rate us on whatever podcasting platform you listen to us on Check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash Revenge of the Drive-In for extended cuts of episodes here, jokes that are cut. <laughs> a lot of good stuff there. There's early access to episodes as well as commentary tracks. Jim, what was the last one we did? Do you remember? Uh, Yeah, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. No, yeah, it's Back to the Future. Yeah, you're lying to me. Yeah, we did Back to the Future. <laughs> but, but hey, we did Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as well. So yeah, be sure to check those out. And yeah, thanks for joining us, everybody. And we hope you join us for our last couple episodes of the season. And thanks, everybody. Take it easy.